uh, training on harm reduction. Uh, this is the first of three half days of it. Uh, so we are the <clears throat> LA County Department of Mental Health and UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership. We've been in business for a couple of years now. Uh, you're probably here because you know who we are, so I won't go into great detail, but we support uh, capacity building, training, technical assistance, and systems transformation for FSP and HOME, so the Homeless Outreach and Mobile Engagement Teams. Um, or other homeless service providers. If you're here today, you're probably FSP. If you're not FSP, we're still happy to have you. Um, and maybe you're also a homeless service provider because they're so, they would have uh, gotten wind of our work. Um, let's see here, what else to say? Our website is noted on there as well. And if you need to email us about anything, our email address is noted there. And David, if you want to introduce, I'll be quiet. Sure, of course, great. Thanks a little bit. Um, my name is David Henrik. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and uh, new to LA. I've been here for about a year and a half and uh, moved from New York City and was spent about four years there working at a, uh, I had two different positions while, during my time there. One of them was uh, vice president of, uh, of recovery programs for a very large nonprofit organization in all five boroughs. And then I also worked for the Council on Accreditation, um, and I did their training uh, uh, for a few years there. Uh, prior to that, I uh, was in, uh, in New Orleans, lived there for 11 years, and finally, prior to that, I was um, I, in Cleveland, Ohio, where I was born and raised, and I started my social work career there. And I'll mention this really quick, like one of my uh, it, it's really interesting how things come full circle. And I was thinking about as we were uh, putting this together, some of my original training around harm reduction before it was uh, as big of a thing as it is now. As I worked at the AIDS task force in Cleveland for uh, four years. And um, when I was doing prevention work there, we did a lot of very progressive harm reduction uh, programs and interventions um, to try to encourage safer sex um, and for those who were uh, not willing to, uh, to uh, engage in safer sex and we took a harm reduction approach. So um, it's probably not appropriate to get into a lot of the details there, but again, just really interesting that, um, uh, yeah, here we are uh, 20 years later and it's come full circle. So uh, we're really excited to present on this today. And uh, yeah. I'm a little long-winded this afternoon, so I'll turn that over to you, Elizabeth. <laughs> not at all, not long-winded at all. It's wonderful to hear. Uh, I wish we could know where all of you are from and all of your stories. Unfortunately, you only get to hear both of ours. So I'm Elizabeth Mackey. Um, I'm a social worker as well. I also moved to LA from New York City uh, about two years ago. Um, I feel like... Yeah, I, I absolutely love harm reduction. I'm so excited to be doing uh, this deep of a training on the topic, especially with the providers in LA County. Um, my story started out actually much more in sort of like research and almost like medical model world, which doesn't feel very harm reduction-y, but I started out doing risk reduction intervention research with college students when I was in college. And we didn't call it harm reduction, we called it risk reduction. Um, and that was around alcohol use, been drinking, moved on to also work in a research setting for uh, sexual decision making around condom use, similar age group. 
And then went to grad school and got involved in more research <laughs> and worked out of uh, some clinical intervention studies uh, looking at interventions around preventing uh, re-injury for people who'd been traumatically injured, so trauma-informed therapy and then, or not trauma-informed therapy, trauma therapy, and then also uh, expert and motivational interviewing. And it wasn't until I moved to New York, which was about 10 years ago now, um, that I actually got into more of the the nonprofit and the grassroots type of harm reduction and was like, finally, I'm here. This is where I should be. Um, I, I struggled. Now I'm back in the university system, but we're with a fantastic group now, which is why we're able to do this training. And we'll, we'll speak about it from such a such a sort of radical perspective, perhaps. Um, but worked in community mental health uh, for a housing first agency that also provided some other mental health services as initially a harm reduction specialist and then um, worked with a uh, transitional housing program and then some mobile mental health and health services. So a bit of a, some stuff that overlaps with what uh, work is like for FSP. Um, but those, those cities are different. Let's see, I, I'm from Virginia. I went to grad school and worked in Seattle and then New York and LA County. We, neither of us have actually done clinical work on the ground here, though David does some private practice, um, I believe, via just telehealth at this point. It's it, one of our areas that we need your help in is filling in the gaps where we don't understand the LA system. So when you have, when you know things, when you know of resources, when you know of when you have questions, when you have challenges you want to share, please, please share, because we might have this knowledge from various other urban environments that also have a lot of challenges, uh, but we won't, we won't know everything uh, for, for your work in your world. All right, so this is the first time we're doing this content, actually. You're kind of our guinea pigs, and there's a good chance we'll do it again in the future. And this is also being recorded today. So if you if you find the training helpful, it will be recorded for the next two days as well. Uh, we encourage you to access those and share them with your staff. Um, but in terms of what why we call this a training collaborative, this is a series of trainings that we have done over the past year. They're meant to be our sort of core core competency, core pillar trainings for FSP specifically, of course, still applicable to home or homeless service providers. The first one we did was back in uh, January. We started with uh, person-centered and recovery-oriented care. Um, we did those in person. We did one per spa. It was great to be able to meet so many providers in person and have that still somewhat, somewhat large groups. Uh, but get that interaction. Um, of course, the pandemic hit. We did our second one of trauma-informed care remotely just over Zoom, and now we're on our third. Um, both of the first two are have been done digitally and are recorded uh, if you want to access those. But harm reduction was something we saw as really being the next logical step. It sort of it sort of builds on and draws from person-centered and recovery-oriented care and trauma-informed care. And you could almost say like, perhaps the recovery movement for mental health and harm reduction maybe grew up around the same time, but they, they look kind of different. Um, harm reduction's always been so grounded in this sort of like rogue activism, like ignoring the status quo clinically, ignoring the status quo legally, pushing ahead and really advocating for the rights of those marginalized who might be engaging in behaviors that are stigmatized or deemed as risky uh, or are criminalized. Um, so 
while it it sort of has more of a movement to it, perhaps, than let's say trauma-informed care, it does have an evidence base. And for PMHP, we 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 do work that is evidence-based. We are trying to implement and train on evidence-based practices. But we also hope today to really, and for the next two days, talk about the spirit of harm reduction as well, sort of the, the brains and the heart of it, um, and hopefully in equal measure. Hopefully we, we give a good cohesive picture of what harm reduction is. Our next training collaborative will be on field-based and systems-oriented care, also team-based uh, approaches. That, we don't know what that's gonna look like yet. It might be a series of sort of small trainings on the many topics for the many systems uh, that providers work within and that their clients are uh, involved with. Okay, let's see here. Um, what else to say about this? I think, I think particularly today out of these three days, um, it's gonna be heavy on history and policy and looking at some of the sort of maybe even moral or political underpinnings to the, the need for harm reduction. Um, and I think, I think we do all of our trainings with a, an anti-oppression and a social justice lens that really recognizes the intersectionality of, well, let me go back, of oppression and marginalization um, that FSP clients face and at times providers as well, of course. I think particularly in light of the past six months with such a spotlight, such a real, real spotlight on racial violence and where most of us working in this field have felt like a myriad of feelings from just despair and uh, fear and horror to maybe hope and determination. We just want to acknowledge that everyone's bringing a unique perspective and burden and motivation to being here today and the next week. And we want to let you know that this training is supposed to be grounded in what is our attempt at using an anti-racist lens. And I think we'll see some of that today. We want to hear if we're hitting the mark or not hitting the mark in this way. I'm a white woman. David's a white man. Not ideal for talking about racism in so many ways, but we really we want to try and we want to do justice uh, with giving information that especially acknowledges when we talk about the war on drugs. Uh, that's disproportionately affected and is, is geared towards uh, oppressing certain groups of people, particularly black communities. Um, so just noting that and welcoming your thoughts and feedback on that uh, as we go through, and especially in our evaluation, which will be given on the third day. Okay, let's see. Um, learning objectives. Who wants learning objectives? Not me. Uh, we, <laughs> these are not the best learning objectives. We'll talk day by day on what our agenda really is for the day. Um, I think maybe I'll just use this slide to also make another sort of comment or disclaimer. Harm reduction is a controversial thing. Um, many people, it ruffles their feathers. To, it, they might completely disagree with it. Uh, it. It might go against something that they, their values or personal experiences they could have had, family members' experiences that maybe uh, seemingly seem at odds with harm reduction and, and what, it, uh, what it can come off as. And we're hoping to open your mind to considering the information we're sharing. We're not hoping to necessarily change your mind, um, but to give information as best we can and do it in, in a way that, that really fosters open exploration of the content. Um, I think 
there are probably experts in the room on harm reduction, and we definitely welcome you to speak up and <laughs> tell us what we don't know and share with the group. And then anyone who's a beginner to this topic, wonderful. We're so happy you're here. We're so happy you made the time for this. Um, but yeah, I think today's going to be pretty didactic. There won't be a ton of opportunity for like group discussion or exercises. The next two days will be heavier on that. Um, the, the third day in particular will be more on practice as for practical application. Uh, so just comment away and uh, David and I will both be monitoring the chat and trying to not miss things history, policy, and theory on Thursday, which is day two. So same time, same place, but slightly longer. We're going to go till 4.30 that day. We're going to talk about harm reduction psychotherapy. Mostly it's just sort of a framework, um, but really talking about working with ambivalence and risk, staying engaged in goal setting. So uh, kind of the, the whole gambit of treatment planning, actually. And then day three is practical strategies, which will include safer substance use, uh, understanding a drug set setting tool is, is a method to figure out harm reduction intervention targets and some other harm reduction applications to topics that aren't just substance use. All right. And with that, we're at day one. And we are going to hand it over to David now, who's going to talk about defining harm reduction. Um, so we are going to talk about defining harm reduction, which is actually a pretty big, uh, it's a pretty big task because harm reduction in, in encapsulates so many different things, as Elizabeth was pointing out in that, in the uh, introduction. And if we could move to the next slide here, let's look at some initial ideas of what harm reduction is. And I'm going to read some of these I recognize you all can read. Um, but I know sometimes the, the print can be kind of smaller if somebody's just listening in. So um, according to uh, Tatarsky and Marlitz in 2010, harm reduction is a theoretical framework for addressing substance use and other potentially risky behaviors. It aims to reduce the harmful consequences of these behaviors without requiring abstinence as a goal or as a prerequisite to treatment. So here, you know, they really look at harm reduction as a theoretical framework as opposed to very specific interventions that are that are applied. And uh, you know, I the consistent theme that we see with harm reduction is that we it uh, as it says in in the name, its goal is to really reduce the harmful consequences of whatever behaviors those are. Now, we are primarily going to be focusing on substance use. Um, we are occasionally going to mention some other areas in which harm reduction um, uh, can be applied, but primarily we're going to be referring to, to substance use. Um, so the, the next quote here, which I really like, is that harm reduction focuses on meeting people where they're at but also the harm reductionist stays with that individual wherever they are, are at. They don't leave them there. It's not to say that other approaches leave people there, but I really like that frame that they meet them where they're at and they stay with them no matter what phase of life or challenge or uh, uh, a stage of change they're in. The harm reductionist is, is, is going to be there. Um, we also can see harm reduction as a set of practical strategies and ideas. 
aimed at reducing, again, we see that repet, uh, repetition here, negative consequences associated with drug use. Harm reduction is also a movement for social justice built on a belief in and respect for the rights of people who use drugs. So uh, it's this is from the Harm Reduction Coalition. And uh, this definition is um, uh, uh, comes from their website. And uh, again, it, this one here focuses on, or it starts to build in the social justice component of it. And so harm reduction, it's, it's a lot of different things, which we're gonna, uh, which we're gonna talk about, of, of course, through, over the next uh, 30 minutes or so in defining. Um, but again, we, I, I know Elizabeth mentioned this, but we just really want to reiterate that this may feel a bit uncomfortable for some of you, uh, whether it's your own personal experiences with family or friends or your professional experiences with clients. So we just want to acknowledge that we all are coming from very different viewpoints, and sometimes this can feel a bit controversial. So hopefully we could uh, facilitate a helpful and productive conversation around it. Um, so moving on to the next slide. So I, I wanted to break down the definition of harm reduction into sort of four different angles. And then we'll, we'll talk about these a little bit. Um, so I, I'd mentioned these a little bit already, but let's look at the first one. It's a theoretical framework. And here it really aligns with the recovery-oriented care approach as Elizabeth was saying in the introduction, certainly aligns with trauma-informed care approach as well. And we'll break that down a bit, but the focus on autonomy, respect, and empowerment. And I, you know, I think the other one uh, that would be helpful to have here, and if we look at, uh, if we go back to the 1950s with Carl Rogers, the unconditional positive regard that everybody deserves respect and to be treated as human, regardless of what sort of behaviors they may participate in, um, what decisions they may have made in the present and in the past. So we always wanna have that respect for the individual. Um, I'll mention this, I believe on the last day, but I'll, uh, it's worth saying here that the harm reduction psychotherapist um, that individual needs to welcome the individual as well as welcome those habits that they may want to change or they may not want to change, but we have to welcome all of those things about a person. Um, of course, harm reduction is anti-stigma and uh, this stigma is interwoven throughout um, our history with substances in the United States. They've been used to oppress, they continue to, uh, they continue to be used to oppress populations. Um, when, you know, if, 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 you were to, if you were to imagine a individual who's addicted to heroin, I imagine the mental image you would get would also be filled with uh, with stigma. And that's not to blame anybody, but it's to emphasize that that stigma is very much uh, part of a foundation of how we view substance use and how we view uh, substance users. And of course, there's so much dichotomous thinking. Because um, I know, you know, after I do this training later on this evening, I'm probably going to have a Manhattan, which is one of my favorite drinks. And, you know, that certainly speaks to 
privilege that I have. And it also speaks to uh, sort of the lack of stigma of, you know, we judge some substances or sub, sub, some substance users uh, through much different lens. And so why I'm in my apartment drinking my Manhattan, trying to pretend like I'm classy, there may be somebody else who's on the street uh, drinking a malt beverage. And when you compare the two of us, our behaviors are exactly the same but how you interpret and how you perceive us as individuals may be very different. It's not to make assumptions here for anyone. Um, so, and then the other component with the theoretical framework is the acknowledgement of the risk continuum that, you know, there are behaviors that are incredibly risky and sometimes there are behaviors that are still risky, but not nearly as, as, as bad. And so we need, or not bad, I'm, I'm putting judgment on it. Um, don't, carry with it as much potential harm. So, you know, will my evening Manhattan tonight, will that produce harm? Most likely it, it wouldn't. Now, if I told you I was, instead of enjoying a Manhattan tonight, I was going to probably maybe inject a little heroin. Um, we could see how my risk is along a continuum there. Um, obviously heroin has a much higher uh, well, actually, I don't want to say that, but the uh, it, it may be more addictive. It may cause lots of other challenges that alcohol, for example, doesn't carry with it. So again, we just want to acknowledge that there's a variety of risks with lots of different behaviors that we engage in. So looking at it from a social justice movement, here it's it, it, harm reduction or harm reductionists, they advocate for the decriminalization, this is a tough word for me, so I apologize, <laughs> decriminalization to minimize the disproportional, uh, disproportional impact of drug policy on marginalized communities. So we, we know that uh, and we can see evidence to support that our black and brown uh, communities are way more negatively impacted by drug laws than someone like me who's who's white and has privilege. We know that that is the case. And so harm reductionists, um, they advocate to, advocate to stop that. Jails should not be the place that people receive substance abuse treatment. They should be uh, in my opinion, I feel that individuals should be able to receive treatment in a warm, inviting, supportive environment if they choose to seek out treatment, not in something that is punitive and uncomfortable and meant to, uh, uh, meant to keep people who are dangerous out of society. So uh, again, it's a social justice movement. Um, and now we can look at harm reduction as a treatment approach. Um, one of the books that I've been reading in preparation for today's training is uh, the uh, harm reduction psychotherapy. So I'll hold that book up, and I believe it's also in our uh, in our references. But here, the author is Pat Denning and uh, Jeannie Little. They present a a model of psychotherapy that embraces harm reduction principles. Um, you could also look at motivational interviewing. Um, there are a lot of harm reduction elements within motivational interviewing. Again, being non-coercive, being supportive and, uh, and, and allowing an individual to make decisions that are right for themselves. So there's certainly a lot of overlap there. And then we could look at harm reduction as a specific intervention. A few examples of those would be 
a syringe exchange program or, or needle exchange program. Um, we could also look at medication-assisted treatment. Again, another very specific intervention. And those two interventions, um, while of course they would love to see individuals achieve sobriety or maybe even some form of moderation. However, the goal there is to, like those are wonderful goals, but really they want to intervene to try to prevent some of the immediate dangers that the substance use uh, uh, that they're participating in may cause them. So uh, again, uh, those are some specific interventions. And, um, and here we have a few different ways to define harm reduction. Okay, so why don't we, uh, you know, actually I, I do wanna go into, we could keep it on this slide too, uh, but just looking at a, a few other elements of, of harm reduction, a few other sort of core pillars is that uh, similar to motivational interviewing, harm reduction, they work to elicit any sort of positive change. And yes, whilst we may work with people who we can think, or we may notice like, wow, if they were abstinent from marijuana, I'm sure their life would look so incredibly different. But we know that sometimes that's not possible. So any positive change based on that individual's needs, that's worth celebration. Um, that is worth um, encouragement, empowerment, and, and it tells us where that individual's readiness to change is. So again, any positive change is, 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 is wonderful. Um, we want to look from, as a harm reductionist, we want to look at the whole person. So again, we see that overlap with person-centered care. And then I just want to repeat one quote again, because I just think it's so important. Meets people where they are at, but doesn't leave them there. Okay. Okay, so here are, I'm gonna go through two sets of principles. And again, my apologies, some of it's gonna get a little bit redundant. Um, so hopefully uh, hopefully it'll sink in. But harm reduction principles from the Harm Reduction uh, Coalition, they spell out that harm reduction, it's a, it's a set of practical strategies. It's a set of ideas that are to reduce the negative consequences of substance use. We've talked about how it is a movement for social justice and that a belief and a respect for the people, uh, for the rights of people who use drugs. And I, I think that's so important to recognize that people who use drugs, um, which may be a lot of people today here in this room, that just because somebody uses drugs, they have rights just like anybody else. Um, it does not attempt by no means, and this sometimes gets caught up in those myths, um, which we're going to talk about, but it doesn't attempt to minimize or ignore the real harms that come from substance use. If anything, it tries to take a very realistic approach. You know, when you are working with somebody from a harm reduction perspective and somebody is maybe feeling ambivalence about whether they should make changes to their using habits, we want to go through all the pros and cons of all the different options. And sometimes the option is, well, you can continue to smoke meth at the same rate that you smoke, uh, that you have been smoking. And what are some of the consequences of that? Well, you know, it could certainly leave you, uh, uh, it, it has such a negative impact on your physical health. It can exacerbate any sort of psychosis. It's gonna make it really difficult to secure housing. It's gonna make it difficult to 
find productive employment. Um, so we don't want to minimize any of those things. Same with somebody who uses heroin that, you know, overdose, death by overdose is very, very real. We would never want to sweep that under the rug. Um, so again, it's, it's just kind of debunking one of those myths that, I, that, that we know is out there. Um, it also recognizes that social inequalities, they affect people's vulnerability to and the capacity for dealing with drug-related harm. So as, as we will continuously reiterate, um, the stigma, the discrimination, the inherent bias that goes along with substance use is unfortunately foundational and we really want to change that. However, we want to recognize that it very much exists. And, you know, an example that I can think of very specifically and we'll talk more about, and I'm sure you've all heard of this, but we could look at um, drug laws on cocaine versus crack. And although they are the exact, excuse me, exact same drug, uh, crack uh, carries with it much harsher criminal penalties in many locations versus cocaine, where it wasn't as it, it wasn't as uh, as serious from a legal perspective. And I could also share from you know my personal experience of actually working literally on Wall Street. Of uh, well, actually not literally, I was around the corner, um, but I was. Uh, in New York, uh, when I worked at the Consul on Accreditation, our office was right at the corner of Wall Street and Broadway. And so I was definitely part of the finance crew there. Uh, not part of them, but I was in the mix every day. And our building was lots of investment bakers. And I could very much affirm that um, with about 95% certainty that there was there were a lot of people who were using a lot of cocaine um, to get through their jobs every day in some in the finance world and uh, um, it, it's again it's a real thing it seemed very socially acceptable uh, everyone in our office are like oh yeah that person was definitely a little high in the elevator and and if for some people it actually brought up some safety concerns anyways going off on a tangent but just recognizing that how drug use can look so different and um, you know here we had these wealthy white uh, bankers using cocaine no issues and if you were to look at that uh, that same drug but if you, it was an African-American person smoking crack um, the stigma we associate with both of those things, I imagine, is incredibly different. And that's coming from the uh, racism that has uh, really fueled a lot of the drug laws that we see today. Um, so uh, harm reduction, it understands that drug use is complex. It's multifaceted. It is so multifaceted. And I, as Elizabeth and I were putting this together, like there is so much like there there are so many different angles and you know this training kept getting longer and longer and longer because <laughs> there was just a ton of content uh whether it's from the legal system from history like history is so much to do with this which is why we're focusing on it today um so uh it it, it affirms seeks to empower uh, uh, people who use who use drugs themselves as the primary agents of change. Um, They're the ones who are going to decide whether they want to change their habits, reduce their habits. Um, and it ensures that people, uh, harm reductionists, 
they want to ensure that people who use drugs have a voice in programs and policies that are designed to serve them. That makes sense. Um, I imagine many times a lot of these programs are developed by people who, who don't use drugs or have not uh, had substance use issues themselves or you know, maybe don't have uh, as, as, as much experience. So we really need to get those who use drugs uh, to have a voice. We wanna hear the voice because remember they have rights. They are the same as everyone else. Um, their behaviors may be different than yours and I, uh, uh, ours, but, or maybe they're not, so who knows. Uh, finally, uh, let's see, establishes a well-being and quality of the individual and community life as criteria for successful interventions and policies. So the goal here is well-being and quality of that individual's life, which will impact the community in which they live. All right. And then here's another set of principles and goals. I'll try to go through these a, a little bit quickly here. Um, uh, so the principles, this is from Harm Reduction International, again, respecting the rights of people who use drugs, a commitment to evidence, uh, really, really important. And we also recognize that finding evidence and being able to do a lot of really, uh, uh, really rich research is oftentimes uh, uh, not possible, uh, or we, we, we don't get to do the research that we would really want to, to find out about about some of the impacts and uh, whether negative or otherwise of, of drug use. Uh, it's a commitment to social justice, uh, avoidance of stigma, and the goals of harm reduction, keeping people alive and encouraging positive change in their lives, whatever that may be, whether positive changes of reduction in drinking or maybe it's stopping uh, smoking uh, methamphetamine whatever, wherever that individual is. Uh, it reduces the harms of drug laws and policy. It's certainly a goal. And we wanna be able to offer alternatives uh, that seek to prevent or end um, drug use. Okay, so there are some harm reduction myths. And um, I hope that after the three days of our training that we'll be able to debunk most of these. Um, but the first myth that we hear very often is that harm reduction is the opposite of, uh, of abstinence, that you either have one or the other. And absolutely not the case. Uh, as somebody who definitely embraces harm reduction, I do work with people who are abstinent and recovering uh, as they identify themselves as recovering addicts. And I 100% support that perspective. And um, one individual that I'm working with um, has been in AA for a little over four years now. It's been a lifesaver for him. I am still, I still identify as a harm reductionist, but I also recognize that AA had met the needs that he has in his life, and he continues to get the support that he needs from that uh, treatment model. Um, again, it does not conflict with harm reduction, uh, with a harm reduction perspective. Harm reductionists, we want to offer all different options if substance use is something that they want to target, not simply saying we have to go to abstinence. Unless the individual says, I need to be abstinent. I think that's the only way that's going to succeed. Okay, then we're gonna take that route. Uh, the other myth is that uh, clinicians should be in charge of treatment. And 
so far from the truth. I, I, we want we want our clients, we want the people that we serve to be in charge of their treatment. We want them to set the goals that they have for themselves. We may recognize that their substance use is interfering with some of their goals, and perhaps we can reflect that as we establish a strong therapeutic bond with that individual. Um, but we don't want to assert our goals onto them. We want to be cognizant of, of what sort of uh, uh, what agenda we may, we might be entering the therapeutic relationship with, and try to set that to the side so we can be present and listen to what the client is asking. Uh, another myth is that harm reduction is giving people permission to use; it's enabling. This one, I think, is a really common myth, and uh, I certainly. In my days of uh, working in New Orleans, primarily as as a mental health clinician at a at, this, at a small clinic, um, we really took an abstinence only approach. And I look back and think about um, how, for some people, that was helpful, but there are other people that that was a really harmful perspective. Um, I could think about lots of mistakes that I have made, um, but we came from this approach that. You know, anytime we didn't confront substance use, we were basically enabling them. Um, if somebody disclosed that they drank every day and we didn't do something, if we didn't try to assert that that is not appropriate, that we would be enabling them. And so uh, now looking back, I, I have a very different perspective. And again, I've made lots of mistakes, but this was one of the myths that I certainly had about it. And that was even after my days of doing harm reduction. Um, uh, in a uh, HIV prevention uh, context. Maintenance medications for treatment of opioid addiction simply substitute one addiction with another. And, you know, this one is, it, it, it's, a, it's really difficult, but we want to remember that maintenance medications, it, they're there to keep people alive. They're there so that people can use in a safe setting if that's the type of situation that it is. And does it mean that we simply continue to provide maintenance medications without offering any other sort of options? Of course not. We, we wanna make sure that along with maintenance medications that there are other options, that maybe the goal for that person is to not use maintenance medications for the rest of their lives. Uh, and when they make that decision or if they decide to go that route, the providers are going to be there with a set of resources and referrals. And then finally, the, the last myth is that anything goes. And of course, absolutely not. But we don't want to uh, we don't want to condemn uh, it, it, harm reduction. It doesn't condone nor condemn any behavior. Instead, it simply evaluates the consequences of those behaviors. And it tries to reduce the harms of those behaviors uh, for the individual, for the family, and of course, for the communities in which they live. So again, I, I, I hope we're able to continuously debunk these myths as we go on through the uh, uh, through the training, um, because these myths, they, they come up often. I find myself that, uh, that again, even from my background and experience, that sometimes I, I get caught up in these myths or even stigma about drug use and harm reduction. So uh, it can represent a radical change for, for many people. Um, a quote in, uh, this is a really, uh, 
great quotes that I like. And uh, Elizabeth, you could probably fill me in. I did the research on who D.D. Stout was, and now I, I don't remember who she is, <laughs> but a quote she has that it, never in 20 years of use did I ask anyone for permission to use anything. So I the reason I like that quote is kind of says like, okay, so they people are not asking for our permission to use. Therefore, are we, is it really our place to say that, you know what, you should be punished for your use or that um, I don't condone this. Well, guess what? I imagine many of our clients don't really care if we condone it or not. Uh, it's not our place to have that sort of judgment. Um, just like Dee Dee said, she didn't ask for permission to use anything. She had the autonomy um, to, to make those choices. And again, that's a little bit of a loaded statement, which we'll dissect a little bit more when we talk about models of treatment. Aditi Stout is someone who <clears throat> is, I believe she was uh, just had been using alcohol, but recovered in a 12-step model, uh, worked within it, and then sort of her world fused with harm reduction. She wrote a great book called Coming to Harm Reduction, Kicking and Screaming about sort of the what AA and harm reduction have in common, how they, how they differed over time, and does interviews with leaders from both worlds. It's a great book. I recommend it. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, so again, so why harm, uh, why harm reduction, particularly as it applies to PMHP and the work that you all do as FSP providers or homeless outreach uh, workers, it, it supports autonomy and self-efficacy. Those are necessary for behavior change. Those are necessary for establishing a strong relationship with the client. Um, it's non-judgmental. So uh, I had shared this earlier, but uh, when you're working with somebody, you want to welcome that entire person. You also want to welcome all of their behaviors. It doesn't mean you have to personally approve of the behaviors that someone engages in, but we have to recognize that that's a choice that somebody has made. We want to we want to embrace that person as as an entire person without uh, stigma or judgment. It's trauma informed in that it acknowledges people might use for a very uh, I, I want to say a, a, a rational reason. And, you know, I, I think a, a classic example is, uh, you know, maybe a homeless veteran who who is addicted to alcohol and, and, and is always intoxicated. And if the reason for that intoxication is because flashbacks and nightmares and intrusive thoughts are so intense that alcohol is the only um, offering for relief, to me, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, again, not saying that you know we should offer alcohol to those who have PTSD, but that just maybe that initial decision when that individual recognized, like, oh wow, this actually stops some of those things temporarily. It, it makes sense. Again, not saying it's a good or bad decision, but it certainly helps me to empathize with why somebody may have uh, uh, chosen to do some of the things that they do. Uh, and again, focused on increased options, and it keeps people alive, which is the most important point of that slide. Uh, here's a quote, uh, treat people as if they are what they can be, and you help them to become who they're capable of being. So that's from Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Go ahead and skip that. <laughs> Did you have something to say, Elizabeth? You see very, a smile came out of your face. So 
that quote. No, I just like him. <laughs> I <laughs> no, I was just smiling back to remembering doing a bunch of never mind, just literary stuff once in a yesteryear yeah. <laughs> around <Yeah. laughs> um, his work. That's all. That's a really great quote, and looking at. Uh, an individual's potential, as opposed to looking at uh, maybe some of the, the more negative things that we tend to focus on are the problems. I, so if you've been to some of our other trainings with PMHP, recovery orientation is really important. And I, I think we've already done a pretty decent job of looking at how the concepts of recovery orientation and harm reduction there's a lot of overlap. It focuses on autonomy, on overall wellness, that people have the right to live a self-directed life and to reach their full potential. And so some key concepts with recovery-oriented care is uh, how labeling, implicit bias, and stigma impact the care of uh, impact the care that individuals receive. And of course, the same thing is uh, applies to substance use and what sort of treatment approaches are applied. Um, we're going to be addressing these concepts throughout the three days, so I won't spend too much more time here. But again, think about some of the stigmas that you've recognized uh, go along with, uh, with drug use, or even let's look at some other behaviors that harm reduction often, often applies to such as sex work. What sort of stigmas come up for you? What sort of labeling, um, is, is infused there? You know, one of the, uh, one of the concepts that Elizabeth and I had been talking about, and again, we both moved to LA around uh, Elizabeth about nine months prior to me moving to LA. Um, and But both of us coming from New York where rec recreational marijuana was not legal and then coming to California where obviously it is, you know, we were just having a lot of conversation with no end result, but again, just dialogue about what is that like in California? How did the stigma change um, or did it change? Is there still a lot of stigma uh, for those who, uh, who choose to smoke or use or consume cannabis? Um, again, no answers there, just things that we've really had a lot of dialogue about and recognizing that we are not natives from California. So very different uh, uh, perspectives coming into the environment here. Okay, so here are just some key concepts and terms. And, you know, the point of a lot of these key concepts is you'll see them in the recovery movement, but also they carry with them a lot of, uh, they have a lot of stigma around them. Um, you know, I think the one that we're going to focus on a lot is this concept of willpower. And you certainly see that in the 12-step model, or at least in the sort of historical perspective of the 12-step model, and that it's a character deficit, or you can see this in the moral model of substance use, that uh, people who use are are, are sinners, or um, they lack they lack character. And so when we see this concept of willpower and that somebody uses because they lack willpower, there's a lot of judgment that that goes along with that. There's there's stigma um, that is attached to that concept. So we're going to talk more about this uh, a, a little bit later. Um, and even like you could look at the concept of rock bottom and 
the concept of rock bottom uh, is traditionally applied to substance use, particularly alcohol, and it's when somebody has had so many negative consequences that they almost have no choice but to make a change there. Uh, and that rock bottom looks different for everybody, of course. And But even that is somewhat of an all or nothing statement. Um, and I think it carries a little bit of judgment and stigma. So again, we'll, we'll break those down a little bit later. Sure. And I would just add some of these other ones that are on here that you might wonder why they're on there, like safety or risky or high risk. Um, it's just also to show, you know, these, these, these terms can be laden with judgment, but they're also super subjective, right? It's from anyone's individual perspective as to what what is what's truth so what is denial and then what is safe and what is safety or what is safer these things exist along a continuum and particularly when we talk about and i'm going to do it even though I, I hate it every time i do it use the term risky behavior or high risk behavior who am i to say what's risky or high risk um think anything can contain risk and that's probably the greatest truth that anyone can say We'll still use these words, but just to be aware that when you say them, particularly to clients or to other providers, they'll have a different meaning maybe than what the meaning is that you're attributing to it. So what David and I talk about a lot in trainings is being really clear and using the most sort of basic objective language you can, trying to really describe things because um, these words have people have heard them, especially clients who have struggled maybe with substance use have heard them in different settings and they could be much more loaded than um, than we're aware of. No, that's great. Thanks, Elizabeth. And, and like just the concept of safe and safety. I mean, yeah, I, I, coming from a place of privilege, like, yeah, my concept of, of safe is going to be very different from somebody who lives in a tent on the street. So who am I to sort of place my definition of safe onto somebody else? Because um, our perspectives are so vastly different. Um, okay, so let's see, harm reduction as a trauma-informed approach. So again, this was our, our second big training topic uh, as part of our uh, training collaborative is trauma-informed care. And the principles that trauma-informed care embraces safety, trustworthiness, peer support, collaboration, empowerment, and a recognition and an acknowledgement and even uh, embracing those cultural, historical, and gender differences and recognizing that they pose a lot of issues because we still live in a culture where those things are uh, perpetuated uh, on, on a very regular basis. So I had kind of given the example of maybe a, a, a veteran who had experienced a lot of trauma and how perhaps using substances for that individual was a rational choice because it was the only thing that allowed him to sort of escape those very threatening and terrifying flashbacks and nightmares. Get not saying it's right or wrong, but looking at it through that lens, the decision to use alcohol or whatever other drug may make a little bit more sense. Um, and so it's really important to, you know, as we look at all the different approaches, whether it's harm reduction or maybe something that's a little more, more rigid with abstinence only, what would that look like through this concept of safety and control? You know, and recognizing that uh, those who have suffered serious trauma um, and have really struggled to resolve that, Control is really, really important. And the more we take control away from that individual, um, the less safe they're going to feel. 
Um, and if anything, we want to make sure they feel as much in control of their treatment as possible because we want to reinforce their sense of safety. So if they enter our program and we say that you, you have to stop using alcohol or drugs or whatever it may be, um, that may not go over very well. We may be triggering them because we represent somebody who's trying to take away their sense of control over their world. So just being able to look at things through this trauma-informed lens can be really, really important. And I actually do wanna read uh, a quote uh, about trauma. Uh, it's a short one, so don't worry. <laughs> but a program organization or system that is trauma-informed, they realize the widespread impact of trauma and they understand the potential paths for recovery. They recognize the signs, symptoms of trauma in clients, family, staff, and others involved in the system, and they respond fully by integrating knowledge about trauma into policies, procedures, practices, and seek to actively resist re-traumatization. And the reason I, I shared that is that that's the definition of how a program can be trauma-informed. Um, it's really summarizing those main points. Uh, and again, we see a, just a lot of overlap with harm reduction practices and philosophies. Okay, so sorry about that. Next slide. <laughs> All right, so I mentioned this, but it's not just about substance use. And you know, we have some other ones here about, you know, harm reduction applies to diet, medication, use, car safety, of course, sexual health, um, even interpersonal relationships. We, I, I'm sure many of us have worked with those who are involved in a domestic violence relationship. And why we may say, or we may think, oh my gosh, please get out of this relationship. You know that if you instruct the individual to do so, it often doesn't go, uh, it often doesn't go over that well. So again, it, recognizing that we want to keep that individual safe. He or she may not be willing to leave the relationship for a variety of reasons. So what can we do from a harm reduction approach to try to keep them safe? What are some emergency plans? Maybe it's about packing an emergency bag, having somebody to call where they can spend the night, uh, making sure that a pet is cared for or a child is cared for. So uh, harm reduction, I think you'd be surprised at how much it really uh, impacts our lives, uh, even those who don't use substances, but thinking about COVID-19, there's a lot of harm reduction strategies that we are using. Some of them work great, some of them not so much, some of them we follow and others we don't. And we all base those uh, decisions on how safe to be based on our own sort of acceptance of risk along that continuum. That, okay, I already jumped ahead and I talked about this a bit. So uh, here are just some last quotes if I'm gonna over the COVID piece, unless you wanted to add anything, Elizabeth, I, I'm eating into your time. No, it's Good. fine. Just, I mean, I think everyone can put it together. There's some harm reduction and risk reduction strategies that can be used in this pandemic. But it was just another example. So no, nothing more to say great. on that really. Great. Um, and here are just here are just some really great slogans. Uh, I, nothing about us without us. That speaks to uh, including people who use drugs and decision making. Uh, don't make decisions of, for those individuals without hearing their voices. 
and then there's any positive change. Uh, again, we don't, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. If somebody is able to reduce their substance use and maintain and achieve goals, that sounds good to me. It's up to them um, what sort of change they would like to make. And progress, not perfection. So a quote from Alcoholics Anonymous, um, recognizing that any step is, is a positive one. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, <clears throat> also, well, on the COVID front, I think we're seeing um, we're, those of us who may believe that mask wearing and hand washing are effective strategies, we're, we're part of the country and there's another part of the country that doesn't. And this is another sort of instance of we can't change other people's behaviors. Uh, we can't police other people's behaviors and shaming and blaming them or uh, you know, sort of judging um, can is just ineffective at convincing people to change. And I'm mentioning that because I'm scrolling up in the chat and I think, where was this? Someone commented, I think it was Dr. Ahmed, I think, um, about, no, that was a different comment, but I'll get to yours too. Um, how do you maintain harm reduction, Hugh, you asked this, when doing so, fringes upon the rights of others. And COVID's a really great example of when harm, when someone's choices can impact others. For example, so you can spread a, a pathogen if you're not wearing a mask. Um, if you, for drug examples, if you're engaging in the drug trade as a customer even, you might be reinforcing um, some business practices that aren't so ideal on the dealer side or the distributor side. Uh, if you're, a, uh, let's say, a, a pregnant woman who's using drugs, you could be harming your fetus. And this is where none of this is straightforward. None of it. Harm is something that can be, again, it's something that is very, it's determined in each context in terms of harm to self or harm to others or harm to greater society. Um, and one behavior can look different through each of those lenses. So what we have to do, I mean, really we're talking about sort of the, the micro here, our work with clients, is look at that and look at their immediate environment and what they value and follow their lead on what, uh, what sort of, what, what the other would be, the harm to others, what that would look like. Um, and it's, this is not easy and there's no one set answer, but it's certainly worth consideration. And then especially at a macro level, we really do have to pay attention to um, how that, how those implications sort of um, expand outwards. And now there's another comment about uh, harm reduction and risk management used interchangeably. I haven't, but that might be because I'm just, I've come from a different sort of world of it than you have. If you want to comment more on that, Dr. Matiyama, you're more than welcome to. Um, others may have a different sense of that. I'm going to scroll down and I think there were two more comments. Uh, Salvador, you say at the same time as a service provider, is the implication or unexpressed assumption that clients would be better off not using any substances? Um, and you'd have to say more, I think, about your question to, for me to understand it. And I won't have much time to get into this, but I would challenge that as I'm reading your question and say, no, um, we don't know, because that could be, it's not always the case that day-to-day -day or moment-to-moment that someone is better off not using substances. Now, long-term, I think we know that substances, many of them contain a lot of consequences. Um, I would say that the question is that, or sort of the, the key is that we can't ask that question. We can't have an agenda and we'll spend day two talking a lot about 
how not to have an agenda or how to check our agenda if we just can't help but have one, um, but just how much we have to follow the benefits and consequences that uh, the client determines for themselves and explore that with them and just be patient and um, again, not have that end goal in mind. Now, everyone works harm reduction a little differently. I bet even between David and I, we have a bit of a different perspective. I'm much more in the camp of I've worked with people who've learned moderation management, even with like opiates or with crack cocaine. And I believe it's possible. And if they can use things safely enough and live a long and healthy life where that adds value and not detracts value from their life, great, wonderful. David might come from a different camp because I think his background's just slightly different from mine, um, where that might be the end goal. Um, getting away from drugs in full eventually might be the end goal. And he may see harm reduction as a path towards that, as a means to an end. And we'll talk a little bit about this later, but all of these things are fine and valid. Um, and this is where there's so much variability within harm reduction. And you as a provider get to take the pieces of it that, that really resonate for you. Hugh, you say, is it true that 12-step, it is true that 12-step community identifies self as power. It is also widely recognized. It also widely recognizes the need for a power greater than self to restore an individual. So around willpower and locus of control, this is something we'll talk about on day two. Some people really find that that power within themselves and that's kind of psychologically how they are constructed and others do not. So what fits for one person is going to be really different uh, based off of that. I'm glad you raised that. And okay. All right. I'm going to move through. I'm going to come back to some of these uh, in the break and give some thought to them. But I want to get through this history and policy section real quick. All right. So this is going to be a good bit of history. It might feel like overkill. And I'm going to go through it pretty quickly. Um, I'm really hoping to set a stage here for why David just talked about stigma, right? And we've talked about how drug policy in particular has been used to as a tool for racism, right? And much of the much of what we believe about drugs, the stigma, the implicit bias, some of the prejudices that we might have come from this drug policy that existed primarily to oppress certain groups. And so if I could have, I mean, that's, that's a quick way of speaking about the next 30 minutes. The number one thing I'm hoping that you'll take away today is to challenge where some of you have about substances and David talking and cocaine, which we'll, we'll talk about a bit more, um, challenge where those come from, get more information because what we've been fed, I think as a society and by the government is pretty inaccurate and uh, had ulterior motives that were, uh, Terrible. All right, so a little bit of history on harm reduction. Uh, it's a public health intervention. So its origin is, some people would say it goes back further than uh, the HIV and AIDS crisis, but we'll start there for simplicity's sake. So two things sort of happened around uh, the HIV and AIDS crisis. We have people uh, contracting HIV and AIDS through two main methods. One is sexual um, activity, another is syringe use. So some countries in Europe opened harm reduction clinics and syringe exchanges in response to the crisis. They were the pioneers. Um, some countries took that a few steps further and opened safe consumption sites decades ago, decades before the US has even been thinking about them. Um, and even medication-assisted treatment uh, was occurring, you know, 20, 30 years ago there. Uh, 
U.S. caught on a little later, and uh, we, let's see, when did we open our first syringe exchange? I want to say it was, I think it was the early 90s, but I could be wrong on that. I'm sorry. I wish I had that noted. Um, uh, so syringe exchange is opened, and other uh, way, um, other sort of like counseling entities that also fell within a harm reduction realm uh, particularly in cities like San Francisco and in New York, open to offer counseling and services uh, for safer sex to provide condoms and things like that, because that was one of the, it still is one of the ways in which HIV is transmitted. Uh, right. So that's one piece of this is HIV and AIDS became an epidemic. It was terrifying, and we're all familiar with the, the intense stigma around HIV and AIDS, which of course, is now, thanks to medical advances, hopefully going to be dismantled in full as it's something that is now preventable and treatable. Um, so the war on drugs, uh, is anyone, anyone here uh, not familiar with the war on drugs? <laughs> so I'll, I'll move even faster if you are. I, you know, if you, if you don't get a lot out of this, I highly recommend watching a couple of documentaries that I'll, I'll have on a slide in a few minutes. Um, but just to move quickly, so the war on drugs started um, in the 1870s and 1880s uh, with Chinese immigrants coming to particularly the West Coast um, and using, not in large numbers, opium. Uh, opium was then the sort of the illicit act. It became illicit. It was used as a way to say, we're, we're as a country, people in power, white people in power are feeling uh, a need to control and to villainize these Chinese immigrants because they're potentially taking jobs and impacting labor and economy. So we are going to paint them in a negative light and use propaganda and rhetoric to uh, be harmful to their identity. And the Chinese Exclusion Act was one piece of that, but that was also followed by and preceded by anti-opium legislation. What's interesting is that by the early 1900s, who was using opium? It was actually white women, white middle upper class women who were using it most. Um, and the, the accusations of China, Chinese immigrants using opium wasn't, no, was nowhere near the actual quantity in which it was being used or trafficked into the country. So that's sort of the first example we have of a racially motivated um, uh, form of legislation that sought to oppress one certain group and use drugs as the excuse to do it. Um, prohibition's a little bit more complex. Prohibition came about, of course, because we had uh, a lot of women's groups um, like the Anti-Saloon League being tired of men being domestically violent and missing work and spending money on alcohol and truly struggling with addiction. Um, but what, of course, we know prohibition didn't, didn't work at all. Uh, all it did was produce organized crime. Politicians were still drinking and, and supporting uh, illicit trade. Um, and in the end, it was actually women's groups who were like, okay, stop this. No, this wasn't a good idea. So the, it was initially the 18th Amendment that started it, the 21st repealed it, um, and we all know it was a giant failure. The PBS documentary, Prohibition, is a five-part documentary. I highly recommend watching it. That's one of the ones I was going to mention if you want to do a deep dive into all of the steps of Prohibition. Um, but what did this create? It, it had some byproducts. It, it made uh, alcohol seem that much more glamorous 
um, and again, created organized crime where that did not exist here before to deal with the illicit trade. And it contributed to some like American sort of disregard for the law, this culture of like, uh, almost like you could call it like the beginnings of a bit of anarchy are, are, are started there. So in some ways it could have been some of the precursor for harm reduction. Uh, something else that was happening in the early 20th century, uh, similarly to the Chinese uh, Exclusion Act around anti-opium laws, anti-marijuana laws started um, being put in place targeting Mexican immigrants and Mexican Americans. Uh, specifically in 1937, the Marijuana Tax Act was passed. So cannabis sales were then taxed. And this was all sort of blended with this fear mongering that was started by a man named Harry Anslinger. And I'll talk more about him in a second. Uh, he was the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics during the Prohibition era and for about 30 years afterwards. Um, so once prohibition ended, marijuana became the focus. In fact, cannabis is what uh, marijuana been, would have been called prior, but the name marijuana was chosen as a form of sort of inciting this like anti-Mexican rhetoric of, you know, using a, a Spanish word instead to sort of align these two identities um, and have them fuse. So a lot of this has to do with very, careful marketing, very careful rhetoric and propaganda and fear mongering. Um, let's see, what else to say about that? Yeah, so what we had in the first full year after the Marijuana Tax Act, Black people were about three more times likely to get arrested for violating narcotic drug laws than whites and Mexicans were nearly nine times more likely to be arrested for the same charge. So policy discriminalization directly and disproportionately impacts people of color. Reefer Madness is a documentary um, or a propaganda piece, I should say, it's not a documentary from the 1930s that if you have not seen it, you should watch it to get a sense for how, how, um, how, how the powers that be were trying to describe what marijuana did to the brain and body and spirit and soul. And it's extremely dramatic um, and it's, uh, it's Reefer Madness down at the bottom of the screen. Uh, Beatrice, yeah, definitely check that out. It's probably findable on YouTube, though I have not looked myself. Okay, so what else is going on? Now we're on World War II and Cold War era. Again, this Henry Anslinger was, he, 32 years, I think? Yeah, 32 years, he was uh, the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He hated drugs, he hated drug users. He seems like a terrible person. Um, something that came out of his reign was the Boggs Act and the Narcotics Drug Act of 1956. And this is what started uh, mandatory minimum sentencing and some very severe increased penalties. Some at, at that time were even pushing for like the death penalty for certain drug charges, which does exist in some countries in this world. Um, that did not happen, uh, but the penalties were incredible. Um, what else to say about this kind of quickly. I think uh, one of the, the twists here is that during the Cold War, there was fear mongering around communism, right? So we've gone through a few races, we've gone through um, immigrants, and now we're focusing on communism, because what next? Um, so drug use and sales were depicted as a communist act uh, to make many Americans fearful of it and get behind this uh, really really harsh legislation. 
Uh, so the fines under the Boggs Act mandated a combination of fines up to $2,000, which was a whole lot of money in that day, and a minimum sentence of two to five years for first offenders and five to 10 years for second offenders with no possibility for probation or a suspended sentence. Um, and let's see here, what else do I want to say there? Yeah, I think we all know at this time, um, there's, you're seeing instances in movies and popular culture of the glamorization of alcohol and tobacco use in particular uh, for whites, and then just increasing criminal portrayals for all minorities across all drugs otherwise. And then the war on drugs, it, it unofficially started under Anzinger, but it officially started under Nixon. So I think we're all sort of familiar with this era of history, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, so Nixon declares the war on drugs. And one of the pieces of this is the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, which gives us our uh, scheduling for, for drugs, uh, which we'll get to in a second. We'll review a little bit of that. Um, and marijuana becomes a Schedule One drug, which it still is federally, which is absurd. Uh, we now have 36 states that have legalized recreational use of marijuana, I believe now. What a fascinating country we live in that we have states' rights. Um, so Nixon, Nixon does this for a couple reasons, right? He is trying to, one, well, he, he's trying to stay in power, um, but he is trying to do that through some really insidious ways. Uh, so. I'm going to read a quote here from one of his top aides, John Ehrlichman. You want to know what this was really all about. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or blacks, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And that says it all. Um, so Nixon's, he was trying to stay in popularity for his choices with the war in Vietnam, which was he was struggling with, and he, he wanted the vote. Um, so this is, this is who got thrown under the bus. Um, he also inappropriately used claims of Vietnam War veterans or active duty um, service members using heroin at rates that were actually that were higher than what was um, what was in reality, and of course, completely not disregarding what the reasons why someone might be using heroin under those circumstances. Um, so that was a piece of this too. Um, the Southern strategy is a little bit more broad and complex in terms of suppressing uh, black voters. And then we're into the 1980s, uh, Reagan and Just Say No, the drug war expands. So what we have going on then is just the start of mass incarceration. Uh, incarceration for nonviolent drug offenses increased from 50K to 400K from 1980 to 1997. And we'll see in a second that increases that much more during the um, Bush, Clinton and Bush eras, particularly Clinton. Um, some other things that came out in that era, uh, DARE, non-evidence-based drug education program, has no evidence, um, and LA Police Chief Gerald Gates is the one who started this. So uh, I don't know if anyone who was living in LA in the 80s is remembering this and tell me your anecdotes if you, if you want to share, um, but apparently he said that 
casual drug users should be taken out and shot. So if that gives you a little bit of a sense of now we've gone from just like fear mongering to hate, to, to deliberate hate and not being afraid to say that. So maybe he is a product of some of that propaganda that was shown in the decades before when he was younger. I don't know. But this is, this is sort of when we talk about how little bits of stigma might exist, even in the most well-meaning of us, if the worst meaning of us, and maybe, maybe an L.A. police chief wouldn't be the worst meaning of us, if they're saying that, then we're, we're getting some of that residue, no matter what. Um, drug policies block syringe access programs to help with the HIV and AIDS crisis. Again, just unhelpful stuff uh, from Reagan era. Let me see what else I can share from that time. Right, so here's some data on um, public perception. In 1985, the proportion of Americans polled who saw drug abuse as the nation's number one problem was just two to 6%, and that figure grew through the remainder of the 1980s until 1989, it, then it reached 64%. So from two to 6% to 64% in a four year period. And that's due to the media, and the media, of course, we know is influenced by politicians. Um, within less than a year, that figure actually plummeted to 10% because the media had lost interest for whatever reason. I guess they weren't being paid enough. But what happened is the policies that were there stayed. Um, so the American public had kind of absorbed a lot of this, this fear um, and this sense of this is a really big deal. We've got to get rid of drugs. The policy stayed, Americans might have lost interest, but they learned. They still might, they might not have been their number one priority, but they learned at that time. Highlight. Yeah, the, well, the one thing I wanted to mention, I, I commented, uh, Solange had uh, recommended uh, uh, The New Jim Crow, and uh, that book is really, I, I feel weird saying it's a really great book. It, it, it is, but the reality it paints is, is truly awful. And um, Gosh, yeah, that really, it's a really important read. So I so appreciate uh, her mentioning that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So here we go. The controlled substances schedules. You all are probably familiar with this, uh, at least for some of these where they sit, especially the ones that maybe your clients use that are pharmaceuticals. But the top one, come on, we can't, we can't have that. Heroin, marijuana, LSD, and MDMA. What a grab bag. Um, seems seemingly unrelated. These are drugs that are considered to have no current accepted medical use, but that's not true. And we know that uh, many states, um, I think I, I'm forgetting the number of states actually uh, that have approved um, medical marijuana, uh, much less recreational use of marijuana. Okay, um, we're gonna do a quick video and to break up my monologue. And David, do you have that queued? And yeah, the 13th is a great documentary. That's the second documentary I was going to suggest. Um, that and Prohibition is, uh, the 13th in particular, might be one of my favorite films. Yeah. But we're going to watch a shorter film uh, right now. So this quick video, I'll just keep talking while you do that. Um, yeah. Uh, when you think about who who's really profiting from the drug trade in the U.S., it's, it's important to remember that infiltrating, as Hugh, as you were mentioning, communities of color and marginalized communities with drugs has a lot to do with keeping the prison industrial complex churning along, which is a profitable industry. Um, so there, there are 
there's probably more than we'll ever be, we'll ever know fully. It's not in our evidence base on how drugs get to how the drug trade is actually in some ways sanctioned um, by the same people that want mass incarceration and the same people that want to suppress uh, minority votes. So yes, I would say those things are all related. Yep. In 1986, when I was coming of age, Ronald Reagan doubled down on the war on drugs that had been started by Richard Nixon in 1971. Drugs were bad, fried your brain, and drug dealers were monsters. The sole reason neighborhoods and major cities were failing. No one wanted to talk about Reaganomics and the ending of social safety nets, the defunding of schools and the loss of jobs in cities across America. Young men like me who hustled became the sole villain and drug addicts lacked moral fortitude. In the 1990s, incarceration rates in the U.S. blew up. Today we imprison more people than any other country in the world. China, Russia, Iran, Cuba. All countries we consider autocratic and repressive. Yeah, more than them. Judges' hands were tied by tough-on-crime laws, and they were forced to hand out mandatory life sentences for simple possession and low-level drug sales. My home state of New York started this with Rockefeller laws. Then the feds made distinctions between people who sold powder cocaine and crack cocaine even though they were the same drug. Only difference is how you take it. And even though white people used and sold crack more than black people, somehow it was black people who went to prison. The media ignored actual data to this day. Crack is still talked about as a black problem. The NYPD raided our Brooklyn neighborhoods while Manhattan bankers openly used coke with impunity. The war on drugs exploded the U.S. prison population disproportionately locking away black and Latinos. Our prison population grew more than 900%. When the war on drugs began in 1971, our prison population was 200,000. Today it is over 2 million. Long after the crack era ended, we continued our war on drugs. There were more than 1.5 million drug arrests in 2014. More than 80% were for possession only. Almost half were for marijuana. People are finally talking about treating addiction to harder drugs as a health crisis. But there's no compassionate language about drug dealers. Unless, of course, we're talking about places like Colorado, whose state economy got a huge boost by the above-ground marijuana industry. A few states south in Louisiana, they're still handing out mandatory sentences for people who sell weed. Despite a boom in its celebrated 50 billion legal marijuana industry, most states still disproportionately hand out mandatory sentences to black and Latinos with drug cases. If you're entrepreneurial and live in one of the many states that are passing legalized laws, you may still face barriers participating in the above-ground economy. Venture capitalists migrate to these states to open multi-billion dollar operations, but former felons can't open a dispensary. Lots of times those felonies were drug charges, caught by poor people who sold drugs for a living, but are now prohibited from participating in one of the fastest growing economies. Got it? In states like New York, where holding marijuana is no longer grounds for arrest, police issue possession citations in black and Latino neighborhoods at a far higher rate than other neighborhoods. Kids in Crown Heights are constantly stopped and ticketed for trees. Kids at dorms in Columbia, where rates of marijuana use are equal to or worse than those in the hood, are never targeted or ticketed. Rates of drug use are as high as they were when Nixon declared this so-called war in 1971. Forty-five years later, 
It's time to rethink our policies and laws. The war on drugs is an epic fail. Um, so the illustrations in that are just phenomenal, I think. Uh, the content of that, um, right, so highlights to tease out crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. It's probably one of the most egregious and ridiculous um, uh, comparative criminalizations of the same substance possible. So crack cocaine has the uh, basically the, a, a couple of different forms of sodium bicarbonate. It can be a couple of different, I think, and I don't know the exact words. I'm not a chemist, um, nor do I run a drug lab. But you're basically just adding baking soda to crack cocaine to undergo some sort of process where it turns into a rock versus powder. Um, it's 100 to 1, or it used to be 100 to 1 severity ratio of the penalty. So 5 grams, uh, I'm sorry, severity ratio based off of the amount. So 5 grams of crack cocaine versus 500 grams of powder cocaine equaled five years federal mandatory minimum sentence. Um, crack cocaine may cause a, a faster high, a more intense high, because you're smoking it, um, whereas cocaine, otherwise you would be snorting it, powder cocaine, both you could technically get into an injectable form, um, and then it would cause a, also a very immediate high, but the research shows crack cocaine does not cause more violent behavior, doesn't impact fetuses more, and it's not more addicting than powder cocaine. Um, so all that's a bunch of hooey, um, and this is something that was used to incarcerate black communities through and through. There's absolutely no other motivation for it. Um, so we've got some data up here in 86, uh, before the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, the average federal drug sentence for African-Americans was 11% higher than that for whites. Nine, in 1990, it was 49% higher. Um, I'll just skip down to the bottom here, actually. Uh, so this just this has changed. Um, it's now an 18 to 1 severity ratio. Don't ask me to actually do that math. Uh, but during the Obama era, um, in the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010, uh, that, re that ratio was reduced to 18 to 1, and the five-year mandatory minimum was uh, removed also. I couldn't tell you exactly what the, the minimum is now. But so things have changed a bit. <clears throat> Um, so during the Bush, Clinton Bush era, um, and this is what the 13th, that documentary is really, really excellent for um, talking about the prison industrial complex takes hold. And a lot of that has to do with Clinton, actually, and it just sometimes surprises people because he was a Democrat and aren't they supposed to be nice? Uh, but the, the crime bill of 94 created community-oriented policing services. So that was giving federal money to states to increase the uh, sort of militarized police force. That's part of it. A three strikes law for habitual offenders was another piece of this. And they were just incentives to build more prisons because prisons, what are they? They create labor for free. Um, and that's the truth. Uh, so many, many goods that you may use, uh, firefighting here in California, that's all prison labor that's paid um, cents for the hour. Uh, so this is, I think it was in, we have 25% of the world's incarcerated individuals, despite having only 5% of the world's population. Um, and during Clinton's eight years in office, the prison population doubled and it's increased astronomically since then. Um, things to talk about with Obama. 
So the White House publicly endorses harm reduction at this time. Um, you know, one of the, the coolest things I've seen, and I kind of, I might even send it around or post it in our media section, is a memo from uh, the, let's see, it was the Office of National Drug Control Policy, which is part of the Executive Office of the President. In January of 2017, right before Trump would have come into office, talking about changing the language of addiction. And it's this incredible recovery-oriented sort of plea for keep the language person-centered, person-first, get out of labeling, let's fight the stigma. And this was what his White House was doing. Um, they, you would see harm reduction rhetoric on whitehouse.gov. Uh, the Fair Sentencing Act is a piece of legislation that came out of this time. Now, interestingly, we had a Democratic president at the time, but Congress was Republican and there were instances due to the opioid epidemic in which um, state by state and some, uh, and at a federal level as well, uh, the ban on funding for syringe programs was actually removed because why? Because white people were overdosing, of course. So then all of these uh, people in power, often white men, per Republican white men, perk up and care. Um, so including Mike Pence, uh, he was the governor of Indiana during the highest, I think it was um, uh, highest explosion of HIV, injection related HIV cases. Um, he declared a public health emergency for the state and got SEPs up and running. Um, and then some other states also had hep C or HIV outbreaks and responded in similar ways. Now the funding that exists for syringe programs, it kind of exists. It can fund everything but the actual syringe, sort of the syringes. It can fund like other program expenses, but there's still technically a ban on federal funding for a syringe exchange. Um, so that has not changed at this point. And then Trump era to current. The Support Act and ECRA, not gonna go into those. If you wanna read about them, they're not, they're, they're things that actually expanded. Um, and maybe we'll see, uh, it's not very long ago, just two years ago that um, that legislation was passed, but it should actually be helpful. So I think there's some things in there that are a little sneaky and not ideal for I think all of our, our collective interests, but for the most part, um, it, it actually, it's meant to sort of uh, improve funding for teaching around addiction medicine, standardizing the delivery of addiction medicine and um, increasing Medicare and Medicaid coverage for it. And ECRA stands for uh, the Eliminating Kickbacks and Recovery Act that has to do with uh, shady dealings in uh, referring people for substance abuse treatment. And now most recently, Oregon just decriminalized drugs. I don't know if everyone caught that um, in the midst of the election, but they did. How strange. <laughs> what a world, what a country, what a state. So what that means, drugs in large amounts are still going to be criminalized, but misdemeanor drug possession is now just going to be like a traffic ticket or uh, a visit to substance use treatment, getting assessed at least. I think that's the sense I've gotten. It's, it's going to be one or the other. So $100 fine or go to treatment or go check out treatment. Um, larger um, felony amounts, I think, are, are just sort of reduced to misdemeanor amounts. So that's Measure 110 that was approved in Oregon, um, and we'll see how that gets implemented, um, how that actually looks. It also is taking uh, tax cannabis taxes and uh, funding treatment programs. So that's another piece of that measure. I think I'm going to skip this next video. It's good. I recommend checking it out. You have that YouTube URL, but you can also look up the title. 
every 25 seconds a human toll of criminalizing drug use in the United States. I think it's fair to say I've beaten this horse quite dead, um, but it, it's worth a watch. And next, documentaries, really worth a watch. Both of these, Prohibition's a much bigger uh, time commitment, but it's in five parts. Let's see, okay. <sighs> History of the opioid epidemic. How about we all just agree that there is one and not go deep into the history of it. Um, perhaps the, this is in your slides. It's a little hard to see. Um, perhaps the second page is the most important here. We've got something that happened in the 90s and into the 2000s where uh, opiate pain medications were just heavily marketed. Big Pharma talked to doctors and doctors agreed to market their medication one-on-one -on -one with their patients. Um, there was a lot of misinformation given around like how important it was to treat chronic pain or even temporary pain, I guess, um, how critical that was and, and what the consequences could be of untreated pain uh, was sort of the rationale that was, and that there just wouldn't be consequences from using all these opiate pain medications. So the amount produced was criminal um, and the, the sort of manipulative marketing practices were also criminal. So what you see now, um, let's see what else is going on. Yeah, there were kickbacks going on uh, to MDs and also pharmacies, including big pharmacies that we probably all utilize um, from pharmaceutical companies and lobbying groups. It's a whole, whole mess. Um, and right now what's going on is that there's litigation and now big pharma, the drug makers are being saddled with um, judgments. So they have to pay money. And what will be most interesting is to see where that money goes. Um, so in these settlements, uh, th one of the most incredible websites I've ever looked at, this woman's brilliant, is um, called Opioid Settlement Tracker. And there's a lot of information. This is written by, I believe it's, a, she's a lawyer, um, but she's got some great infographics in there that really explain what went wrong. Where did the FDA and DEA just kind of not do their job? Because they are both the entities that are supposed to look after sort of the illicit drug use and then the uh, pharmaceutical drug use or pharmaceutical drug world. And they both it just didn't, they failed for various reasons. So this again, and your slides will look kind of complicated, but you can go to opioidsettlementtracker.com and there's this and a bunch of other infographics. And the site is called opioidsettlementtracker.com because there's an interest in figuring out where this settlement money is gonna go. Is it gonna to go towards preventing overdose now that we've got a mass number of people who are using opioids um, and opiates, people who started on pain pills and then moved on to heroin or still using just prescriptions. It's, uh, we don't know. So I encourage checking that out and understanding what regulatory capture means because that took me a minute to wrap my head around. I swear this might be the, the smartest woman's writing I, I've read in a while and I've been reading a lot. Okay, um, just two more minutes. We're not gonna discuss this, uh, but just think about it for a second, maybe on your break. Um, how might all of this history have really shaped our implicit biases and stigma in light of policy? So 
opioid epidemic, all of a sudden everyone cares because white people are dying. Harm reduction actually starts to get embraced. It starts to be sanctioned. It starts to be funded. Um, we haven't really gotten to talk about welfare, um, so let's just not. And then marijuana legalization, just as David was talking about, have your attitudes changed? You know, did you have some judgments about marijuana use? Was was pothead used in a pejorative manner in your in your language in the past? And maybe that's shifted now. I think everyone's sort of different in this way, and the states that you've spent time in will certainly influence that. But just things to think about. All right, I'm going to use my last minute or two um, because we've been talking about harm reduction like it's the answer and like it's a one-size-fits-all thing not really just kidding it's not it's a variable thing that fits differently for everyone but there are communities including the black community that aren't necessarily going to be a fan of it and i am embarrassed to admit that i had never really thought about this despite serving um, especially older uh, black adults in new york city and the outer boroughs who were like, really not into harm reduction at all, really like my 12 step, I'm not gonna come to your groups, I'm not gonna talk to you about this. And these are people that I was just like, oh, just come, come to support your, your peers. This is in a supportive housing setting uh, to contextualize. But they were like, nope, this isn't what I believe in. And in fact, I think it's harmful. I think it's not, it's beyond enabling. And I was like, okay, each to their own, that's all right. But there's sort of a deeper, piece here that it's important to understand, especially if you're all um, budding or experienced harm reductionists. And that's this, I assume, could apply to other communities as well that have been um, disproportionately impacted by uh, drug policy and criminalization. Um, and perhaps those that have also a heavy faith sort of presence. I don't know. David actually did a little bit of lit review to see if that was the case for Latinx communities or API communities, Native. Didn't find any good literature on it. In fact, there's not much literature even on Black communities' perspectives on uh, harm reduction. But here are just some takeaway points uh, that, of course, it makes sense that harm reduction might not seem like the best idea. There are a lot of white people involved in creating it and touting it. And it's a way to keep people using drugs uh, and to not force them to stop, which the, if anyone is used, if you're a black individual and you were using drugs, you were at risk of criminalization. Um, so looking at it from that perspective, it makes sense why that would not be something that would be warmed up to. Also the importance of sort of sobriety and abstinence. And that's, those are might be values that were touted by faith leaders, older faith leaders in those communities. And that's, that, that can be the ideal. So I think when we think about values and why some people really prefer abstinence, it's important to realize that it, this it's not just sort of maybe something, a personal experience, it's something that's really pervasive in their community um, and, and touted by uh, someone that they really respect. Um, what else do I have here? Yeah, also a desire to dispel or disprove white created stereotypes. I can't say if that's true or not, but it's certainly something to consider. Um, and then rational hesitance around accessing substance use uh, services or medical or other services because of, again, we David and I have talked about this a lot in former trainings, but how implicit bias um, is going to, it's going to be just doubled. You know, there's not only the fact that someone is a person of color and they might not receive as good of care, but then if they're a substance user as well, that could impact um, them receiving equal care to, let's say, a white person coming in who does not use drugs. So I don't want to make this an afterthought, but 
the reference that's there, the Eversman article, is particularly good um, in breaking this down. It's a qualitative study of understanding attitudes from Black communities around harm reduction. And then hand it over to David, who's going to talk about models of addiction. Then I'm going to round out the day again by talking about um, harm reduction's perspective on addiction. Uh, let's see here. We were just talking about concerns and criticisms of harm reduction in Black communities. And one, one bullet that I missed here, that potentially harm reduction is not sufficient to raise individuals impacted by structural racism out of instability, poverty, and addiction cycles. Um, and I, I think that's such an interesting point, and I'll touch on something a little later, um, a concept called recovery capital, what it, what it takes to recover. But we all know that it takes takes all of the social determinants of health being considered, all aspects of someone's um, life, their, their ability, their sort of um, socioeconomic uh, upward mobility, how, what barriers might exist to that. And it, harm reduction on its own, just as a will reduce harms and uh, not sort of keep stop you from using, that could absolutely feel that way, unless that harm reduction program is coming with a whole other blend of sort of like maybe vocational or case management services. Um, and that's when it's harm reduction as an intervention is sort of different. And of course, that would be perceived that way as not enough to deal with um, the, the myriad of sort of barriers or lack of resources that could occur um, in communities that are oppressed. So just one last bit to point out there. And all right, so where what are we left with here? There are harm reduction policy initiatives and there are harm reduction programs. So we've talked through decriminalization a bit. Um, what we have talked about are some other sort of policy initiatives, reproductive justice, and we're not going to really talk about it at all. But it's an area where harm reduction is uh, involved and can apply. Good Samaritan laws, just an example of a policy initiative um, that, that involves if you if someone's overdosed and uh, you're calling, you've been using as well and you, you call EMS or the cops, you're not going to get in trouble as well. Um, funding and legalization, funding and legalization of all of these programs on the right, which include uh, syringe exchange programs, housing first housing and the lock zone, also known as Narcan, um, and supervised consumption sites. So some examples there. We don't need to learn about the world, do we? Um, Oregon's not the first to decriminalize drugs. Some other countries have done it. Uh, Portugal, I, I believe, was the first, so it's noted here. They did that in 2001, um, and it's it's because they were having um, sort of a, an extreme uh, increase in HIV and uh, hepatitis B and C and tuberculosis. Um, they diverted funds from criminalization to reintegration and rehab efforts, much like Oregon seems like they're planning to do. They didn't increase the crimes for drug use. Uh, I'm sorry, it did not increase crime or drug use and paired with harm reduction policy and program programming, uh, disease transmission was reduced. Now I have a pile of stats here on the impact of uh, harm reduction programming globally. You'll have to just trust me when I say it It absolutely works for reducing um, HIV transmission. It absolutely works for preventing overdose and it's cost effective. Actually, the money spent on harm reduction programming when that's invested versus, let's say, incarcerating someone 
uh, it's, I think it's like a four to one ratio or something um, on how cost effective it is. You'll have to trust me though, or, or check our reference list and do a little digging there. All right. Um, so models of addiction, a lot of what we're going to talk about is there's going to be a lot of overlap to what Elizabeth went through. So we may not need to spend as much time on this um, as, as we have allocated. But um, yeah, so let's let's jump into the, the first model of addiction, and that's the moral model of addiction. So essentially, the tenant of this model is that addiction is, it's a character deficit. It's a lack of willpower, or it could even be viewed as a sinful, as a sinful act. And so being addicted, therefore, uh, it erodes character and, and uh, morality. So those are some of the main tenets of this moral model. And this really started back in history, way, way back in our in, in colonial times. And th there's so many, there's, I, I'm not a, I don't consider myself to be a history buff, but there is so much interesting information in, in, in doing the research on this and, and where the origins have come from. And I, I highlighted a few things that I just thought were really interesting of just how substances have been so integrated into into American culture back from from its founding. And so all the way back from when uh, uh, when I want to say America was discovered, but when America was sort of um, rediscovered by Europeans and and Europeans were the ones to really introduce alcohol to the Native Americans who, uh, or the indigenous population here in the United States or, or, or in North America. And, uh, and throughout that history, the presence of alcohol was, it was really ever present. It had a really significant role. It started as, uh, it really rum was one of the first beverages that was consumed all the time like there there wasn't a way for people to purify their water so i i don't know how you do this so don't ask for a how-to tutorial but they used rum to to help purify the water and so rum was consumed in the morning as part of breakfast it was something that everybody uh sort of drank throughout the day and you know and the way they were making rum it was from molasses that was coming from europe and in Europe, eventually, or, or Britain, they, they cut off the molasses supply, and I, I don't know why. But um, so people got uh, a little bit more creative, and they started making brown liquor from grain. So instead, whiskey was was born out of that. And uh, whiskey, this I think is a really interesting fact, uh, is that whiskey is cheaper that was cheaper than coffee, and so. Um, whiskey was really the drink of choice throughout uh, the colonial times. And um, there weren't any moral judgments about it. Um, it was just a fact of life. It was used as a, as a tender, as a way to trade goods. And, and so was tobacco. That was another really important substance that has so many uh, underpinnings to our, to our society and our, our structure. And again, it was used to um, it was also used as a tender, a form of, of trade, you know, and also not surprisingly, you know, Elizabeth, I believe had mentioned this a little bit before, but we, uh, we, and I say we as, as Americans, I guess, uh, in those days, so I should probably switch my pronouns, but the 
the Americans in the colonial times, they would actually use alcohol as a way to impair the natives, the indigenous people. So that way they had an advantage over them when they were making trade deals. So again, I, I, I not terribly surprising, uh, but still it's, it's still a little bit shocking to uh, to read that. So, um, yeah, they were often given uh, alcohol during treaty negotiations. And, um, you know, we often wonder why the rate of alcoholism seems to be, uh, or not seems to be, is very much elevated in the Native population. And, you know, sometimes we wonder why. Well, it was certainly the uh, European settlers who, who introduced that um, to the native population. So anyways, uh, bringing things up a little bit further to late 1800s and early 1900s, alcohol is obviously like integrated into so much of society. It's not surprising that it started to lead to some problems. So there was a lot of public drunkenness and, and it led to domestic violence, child abuse. And, and from that, there was a, a strong desire to, to do something about it. Um, and so, you know, here the focus was on alcohol because other drugs were, were used and they, the people didn't really see a, a problem so much. And in fact, opium uh, was considered somewhat of a cure-all. And um, again, Elizabeth had mentioned this earlier on, but it was in many, many different products. Uh, same with cocaine, like those were readily available drugs during those times, but alcohol was the primary concern because it was so obvious with uh, the uh, the public drunkenness that was, that was taking place. And, uh, and what also I found pretty interesting is similar to today's times, there was a really big, uh, increase in their incarceration population. Um, but then of course, incarceration looked a little bit different, but they went, people were going, there was a huge increase in people going to debtor's prison. And, uh, you know, there weren't any sort of social welfare systems in place. So if people were spending all of their money on alcohol, uh, they weren't uh, able to pay off their debts. So uh, they were, there was just this influx of going to debtor's prison because they, they weren't able to pay their obligations. So, um, so going back to alcohol and looking at it from this, this moral model, the goal, it, it led to the temperance movement, which initially was about moderation. Um, and, it, it, and then it slowly switched to abstinence, but the goal was to reduce domestic violence. And then the goal was also to be able to serve God well. And I, I want to read um, directly from this because I just think it's such a really important, uh, it, it summarizes uh, the moral model really well. So it, the moral model of conceptualizing addiction, it evolved from historical use and abuse, as, I, as I've kind of shared, and it attempted to remedy the impact on society. So again, that the, the domestic violence, child abuse, and people, um, uh, the perception that they weren't able to serve God well. So the moral model, it assumes that uh, addicted people, it assumes that they refuse to abide by ethical or moral, uh, uh, moral principles of conduct and that their behavior is freely chosen. Excessive drinking and other drug use is viewed as an expression of irresponsibility of sinful behavior and evil, even evil possession. 
the addict, um, and that's the language that was used, is defined as a transgression or a transgressor who is engaged in morally wrong behavior. Um, and during with the Moore model, they are they are people are seen as choosing to create suffering in themselves for those that use and for their family members, and therefore they can be justifiably blamed for their actions. And because the behavior was seen as freely chosen, the most logical way to treat the problem was to punish the transgression, uh, transgressor, excuse me. Therefore, from this perspective, the best remedy is to create legal sanctions, provide stricter jail sentences and increase fines to control and punish the user. Punishment is preferred over providing care or help to the addicted person. Relapse is considered evidence of the enduring evil and sin present in the person and a sign that further more intense punishment is needed. So, Clearly, a lot of uh, really significant red flags there uh, in how the moral model, moral model defined um, defined addiction. And there's also this really interesting, um, ironic sort of uh, story within that. So one of the fathers of the temperance movement, so Reverend uh, Lyman Beecher, he had put himself through school uh, selling alcohol on the side. But unlike the original moderate messaging, he preached the message of abstinence. And so remember, he's preaching this message of abstinence while still selling alcohol on the side. Uh, Reverend Beecher's work shifted the tone of the message from moderation to one that any use of alcohol was bad. And this was really the beginning of what become, and we still refer to today as the moral model. Okay, so then we move to the disease model. So here, this is, I'm going to read something from uh, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and it's the it's sort of their definition of how they view it in, uh, in the disease model. So the initial decision to take drugs is mostly voluntary. However, when drug abuse takes over, a person's ability to exert self-control can be seriously impaired. Brain, excuse me, brain imaging studies from drug, drug addicted individuals show physical changes in areas of the brain that are critical to judgment, decision-making, learning, memory, and behavior control. Scientists believe these changes alter the way the brain works and may help explain the compulsive and destructive behaviors of addiction. So that's coming from, um, uh, from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, but if we look at this disease model, and we break this down a little bit further, it's almost viewed as a disease of the will in, in the early 1900s. And then with research in the 1970s, um, we were able to do a little bit more testing, more uh, sophisticated um, research, um, it, it expanded. And here a point, uh, endorphin deficient individuals may be more vulnerable to addiction as a means of self-medicating for physical or emotional discomfort and for metabolic purposes. And addiction explained substance use further depleting endorphins, thus producing the dependence. So here they're really looking at it from a very biological uh, scientific lens. And the disease model of addiction, it was initially, uh, it was endorsed publicly in 1997 by the then director of Alan Leshner, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, 
and then it continued to evolve to include genetic neurobiological explanations for addiction, as well as chronic disease conceptualization. And so uh, an article that is, is really helpful, uh, there's a, a blog on the National Institute on Drug Abuse, Nora Valco, uh, the Institute's current director, she wrote that the slogan, addiction is a brain disease, was not specific enough. In its place, she substituted, drugs rob the brain of the capacity to exercise free will. Now, her predefe predecessor, who I had mentioned, um, Alan Rushner, he made a similar claim in 1997 in an article published in Science. He stated that addicts start off as voluntary drug users, but then as a function of the drug itself, he or she is turned into a compulsive involuntary drug user, um, which mind you is exactly what they said in the early 17th century by uh, that clergy had claimed. However, neither of these individuals, uh, neither of their statements that they had put out on the disease model, they don't offer testable definitions of what they mean by free will, the loss of free will and involuntary behavior. So we really don't have a way to truly define that. And I think that's certainly one of the weaknesses of, of, of the disease model. There, there are some pros and cons to this model. And one of the pros is that it reduced focus on character deficit lack of will. So if we were looking at the moral model and somebody who uses substances, they were identified as sinful, as bad, potentially even possessed um, by evil. Here, the disease model uh, kind of removes that. And it's not so much, uh, it, it's not a focus on, the focus isn't on character deficit or loss of lack of will, but it's, they look at it as a true medical issue. The responsible, uh, and this also led to uh, sophistication around medication assisted treatment, because now we have this very strict medical model in which we're viewing addiction. And now there is this, uh, at least in MAT, there are medications that can be prescribed to address that problem. Doesn't cure the problem, doesn't make it go away, um, but at least helps reduce some of the harm. So some of the negatives about this is the disease model, it can be really viewed as dichotomous. So it, it's either you're addicted or you're not, legal or illegal, kind of that all or nothing thinking that, and I think to generalize all or nothing thinking really plays a lot in this. And, and it also, there is a lot of pathologizing uh, with this model, but also um, it, it, it can take away an individual's um, ability to, to feel autonomous. And um, I know there are varying views on whether or not, uh, you know, uh, about autonomy and is that taken away when you start using substances. But if somebody does feel like they have the ability to stop using, sometimes this disease model almost uh, I don't want to say dehumanizes, I think that's too strong of a word, but it invalidates that. It's no, you have a disease that you may not be able to do anything about. And again, I realize that I, that's a, a um, speaking that in a more rigid term, and, and there is a lot of gray area there. And I think people can use the disease model actually to be pretty validating, but these are just some of the ways that it can be a, a negative thing. And there are certainly a lot of positives to the disease model as well. Um, so, and then uh, to look at uh, some what some of the professionals in this field say, uh, Levy, and I believe this is from 
it's not from this book. I'm so sorry. I don't remember which book it's from. Um, but he argues that while addiction does produce neurological dysfunction, it's not enough to make it necessarily a disease. In his eyes, disease involves impairment and impairment must be understood relative to the social and practical context in which addicts live. And I'm sorry, the word is addicts, um, but that's the, the quote. Um, and so in contrast, another article, Wakefield, Wakefield and Schmidt's article, How Many People Have Alcohol Use Disorders? They point out that focusing too heavily on the negative health uh, correlates of chronic alcohol use, uh, DSM-4 and the DSM-5 criteria risk diagnosing non-addicts suffering the ill effects and long-term use with the addictive disease. So uh, to kind of reframe that and to summarize that, uh, we can potentially be over pathologizing. We could potentially be putting this label on of addict or someone who suffers with addiction to people who don't truly have an addiction. So um, again, there's pros and cons to this, um, whether it's over pathologizing or maybe even validating that that someone feels as if they, they don't have control over this. Um, there are probably ways to uh, find some balance and recognizing and respecting uh, the person that you're working with, what perspective they have about addiction if they identify as somebody who has, who has an addiction. Okay, so Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step movement. So I wanna first say that uh, AA and 12-step have been incredibly valuable for, for many people. So as we talk about some of the criticisms and the pros and cons, I want to uh, reiterate that I, it's, it's not all or nothing. It's not a good program or a bad program. It works amazing for some and it doesn't work well for others. So I think it's really important to recognize that. Um, so going back to Alcoholics Anonymous, this really started, it, it started out in the 1930s. And uh, there were, it, it was born out of this group called the Oxford Group, and it was a Christian fellowship group. And and um, it eventually left that group. However, there were two men that uh, really worked together to start this program. And they were both suffering with, uh, with an addiction to, to alcohol. In fact, one of them, uh, it's uh, there's uh, there is Bill W and Bob S. And I, and I, I don't remember who it was, but they were in it, pursuing a law degree and he actually didn't graduate because he was too intoxicated to pick up his diploma. So needless to say, they were feeling some pretty serious effects of alcohol and the addiction. And so, um, so they, those two men came together and they eventually were able to develop uh, what we now know as as Alcoholics Anonymous and this 12-step movement. And we're going to go into what the what the 12 steps are. Um, and but initially it did start off with a very much a, a harm reduction orientation in that they were there to support each other in whatever decisions uh, that uh, that they were making. And, and thank you, Hugh, Dr. Bob and Bill W. Yeah, I, <laughs> I've seen the uh, the, the, the two individuals referred to in a few different ways. And I think it was Joel, who was also from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, what I've learned in doing this, which is really interesting and in that they, uh, uh, it, it's really kind of, they came to Akron, Ohio, and that's where this, uh, where the 12-step uh, movement was kind of born out of. And 
for those who don't know, Akron is about 45 minutes outside of Cleveland. Um, we would make the trip up there every once in a while when I lived in Cleveland. Not too many exciting things in Akron, but, uh, but anyways, I'm going off the topic there. <laughs> uh, since its 30s, it's, it's, it's really evolved. And, you know, initially AA 12-step movement was really focused on alcohol addiction. It was not intended for drug use. It wasn't intended for eating. It wasn't intended for sex addiction. And we now see that there's a ton of different groups that, ad that have adopted the 12-step model to apply it to their, to their addiction and or to whatever problem behavior uh, they've identified. It really wasn't until 1953 that, um, that the founders and, and the organization around 12-step that they allowed other groups to use those 12 steps. Um, and, and for those to be uh, applied to other uh, other addictions and other problems, and so the uh, there are again I was saying there's a lot of different other twelve step groups now. I mean there's of course Alcoholics Anonymous, but Anonymous. Gosh, I'm gonna get caught up trying to say this over and over. Uh, there's uh, uh, cocaine Anonymous, there is, there's a ton, I'm just going through a few, there's Marijuana Anonymous, there's Narcotics Anonymous, uh, there's Sexaholics Anonymous, again, the list goes on and on. So really their work has, uh, has, has truly made an impact in the recovery world. Um, but I have to admit, uh, it's really, you know, I have found that I often have uh, judgments and I apply stigma to use of the 12 steps. And it, like I said, it works really great for some and others, you know, it doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to, to work a whole, uh, it doesn't seem to work very well. And so I also had this um, uh, sort of bias against it, but I have since worked with so many people who have benefited positively from it and worked with those who haven't. And I'll share a bit about that in a minute. I think we'll have to pass on reading through them. Um, that's sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will uh, simply read the first one, and I think that's probably one of the more important ones, is that we admitted we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. So one of the main tenets is uh, recognizing that there's a higher power and surrendering to that higher power. Now, I want to recognize that there are probably others who can speak to the 12-step program much better than I can. And I apologize, we're not spending as much time on it as, it as it truly deserves. But if we go to the next slide, it talks about some of those sort of stigmas that I had uh, experienced. And then I, I know other people uh, sometimes experience that as well. But the possible challenges is the spiritual orientation that it's required or that it's super, super important. And you know, I'm working with a gentleman now who, you know, he actually, 12-step has been an incredible resource for him. He does not, uh, he doesn't necessarily believe in a, in a higher power. He was able to sort of uh, make the model fit to uh, meet his own unique context of not having beliefs in, in God or religion um, and still being able to make this work. Uh, and so, you know, some of the other challenges with the 12-step model is, um, you know, loss of jobs, relationships, uh, that stuff might seem to be unrelatable and social skills and toler tolerance of large groups is, is somewhat required. Now, um, perhaps, you know, you could go to a large AA group and maybe not participate very actively if you're shy, but 
that can be a barrier for a lot of people. And there, it, uh, there it has been some stigma and disapproval of psychiatric medications in AA or NA. Again, I think it really varies depending on the group that you go into. And, um, and, and it's for those who do want to go, uh, who, who do believe that uh, 12 steps would be helpful for them. A really important part is to make sure you're finding a program that meets your needs and uh, one that you feel comfortable with the, with the others involved. And it may take searching around a bit. It may take some work to find a group that you feel really comfortable in. So if you're working with anybody um, who's involved in 12 step and they're getting a little bit disillusioned, but they still really want to do this program, um, encourage them to look, maybe look for other groups. Um, maybe they just haven't found one that meets their needs in the community. Um, and then, you know, it, one of the things that we don't have up here is, you know, there's also this uh, notion like AA really encourages wants people to accept abstinence as the end goal. And that might be a big uh, a big drawback for some individuals. Um, some people might really want to do moderation and whether or not that works for them, um, this idea of uh, kind of giving up or surrendering power to a, great, to a higher being uh, in order to achieve abstinence can be a real turnoff. Um, okay, anything else, Elizabeth, that you would add to 12 steps before yeah, we go into the adaptive a, model? A couple things on this slide, actually, just a point um, that you've made to me about, and that you could have just said this, and I hope my brain didn't just not listen for a second, but just in terms of being trauma-informed, surrendering power and control can be uncomfortable for some people um, mentally if, if, if they've, let's say, experienced trauma or are actively experiencing symptoms of PTSD that comes to mind. And then also for people who might have say like uh, some sort of uh, like a religious focus that's related to psychiatric symptoms like perhaps delusions uh, persecution or things like that um, the spiritual piece can be challenging for them as well I've worked with some people in the past who were like at times when um, their symptoms were uh, increased that was something they really fixated on and it just ended up being a bit of like um, external stimulus that ended up unhelpful um, but yeah we 12-step programs are an option, and there are others, and we'll talk more about them probably, I guess, day two, um, but there are other sort of group step-based programs that look different. There's moderation management, smart recovery, different ways of approaching things and sort of a mutual aid and uh, group context that are also helpful. Okay. Yeah. Great, thank you. Yeah, and I think that sense of community is 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 such an important part of the twelve step model. And some of the challenges that I know I've seen, and I think Elizabeth, you and I have talked about this, and that there has been a lot of sort of mandating people to go to twelve step programs. And I recognize that that could be helpful in some instances, but in others, I, I feel like it, it can create a community in which there are a lot of people who do not want to be there, who are there because they're being referred or maybe because they don't even feel that they have any sort of addiction or problem with uh, with substance use. And so uh, sometimes that can be a little bit uh, frustrating, I'm sure, for both parties, for yeah. those who really want to achieve recovery in an AA model and for those who are required to go there and don't want to be there. And, Right. Going back to embrace that. Absolutely. Going back to a prior slide, that's sort of what happened in the 80s. Um, courts got their hands on AA, didn't they? Uh, they people started get, getting mandated treatment. And as things moved from 
an inpatient setting to an outpatient setting, uh, just in terms of addiction treatment in general, there was this supplementation with AA uh, that both the uh, both provider context and legal context, um, sorry, criminal justice context used AA. So then you've got people in in a group with those who really want to be there and are motivated to be there, and then those that don't want to be there and are just doing it to pass a requirement. Um, so I think that that's been part of maybe. Well, part of it, that, that is a problem that's not going to work. Um, and then, Ashley, I see your comment there. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Just not everyone can develop a relationship with a higher being. I would be completely incapable of doing that. I am an internal locus of control girl, and I, there's, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, but I could take many of the other steps and learn from them if I found myself in a position, I think. And so... Not, it's just not one size fits all. Sometimes we talk a lot about adaptive models and we're actually gonna talk about something called the adaptive model of addiction in a second, um, but it's not for everyone. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, that was very helpful. And also thank you, uh, thanks Jean for answering that about uh, smart recovery. Um, uh, Hector had a question about is smart recovery abstinence-based and Jean was able to pull out a resource there and, and let us know that it is abstinence-based at its core. So thanks so much for doing that. Um, so now we have the adaptive model of addiction. And so uh, the adaptive model really pulls in lots of different reasons and, and methods for, for, why, for why people may use and starting with childhood and challenges uh, that feed adaptive failures. Uh, so this could even be tied with tied into attachment. Um, uh, again, just the, 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 the family dynamic that someone grows up in. Um, it could also uh, sort of tie into socioeconomic and resources available. But, uh, but yeah, adaptive models starts looking at childhood challenges that have sort of perpetuated uh, maladaptive behavior. Um, and so drugs and alcohol come into the picture and they can, they have this role in compensating for failures. And then of course they influence our coping mechanisms and, and personality. So you could see how it's building and building. Um, treat, uh, so when using an adaptive model of treatment, uh, the, it, it's going to focus around those early experiences, but also in present day, uh, replacing some of those old coping mechanisms of whether it's drinking or using a substance other than alcohol, um, but slowly being able to replace those with more adaptive coping mechanisms, um, putting or, or working with an individual to create healthy communities that uh, will help to support um, a uh, help to support those more healthy coping mechanisms. And um, and through a psychological lens, substance use is often seen as a symptom. So it's not so much that substance use is the, is the core diagnosis, but perhaps it's simply a symptom of something else. Perhaps it's a symptom of major depressive disorder, and that is one of the maladaptive behaviors that had developed. And it, I keep saying maladaptive, and I I have to actually correct myself because it may have been adaptive at some point. Um, alcohol use to deal with depression may have been adaptive at first for that individual or same with PTSD. Uh, I think that's an easier example to kind of wrap my head around. Um, but, uh, but yeah, over time it may have turned into problematic and no longer adaptive and, and now uh, uh, maladaptive. Yeah, I think uh, in terms of the, the adaptive model of addiction, certainly not a sort of like commonly um, 
discussed or thought of concept. It is just sort of the non-disease model and um, it's what, you know, using CBT for substance use or MI has sort of grown out of to some degree. Um, and there's some criticisms of it from the harm reduction camp that it kind of, it's the super psychological private practice lens that just sees substance use as a symptom rather than um, it's a symptom of, uh, of a mental health concern versus seeing it more integrated. Um, that in fact, maybe, maybe a harm reduction lens would look at substance use as perhaps it's a symptom, but perhaps it's also just something the person enjoys doing that brings value to their life. And to have that more expansive perspective is sort of would be um, a layering beyond the adaptive models um, scope. Yeah. Okay. And I guess one thing I would add just really quick is like, I, I really do feel like, uh, it, like it is really important, I think really helpful to have more integration between uh, uh, the field of substance abuse and the field of, of, of mental health and have a little bit more integration. I know that can be impossible for many on the call because um, DMH, like that's mental health and substance use falls under uh, public health, I believe for uh, LA County and funding gets tied into that and that causes problems. So again, recognizing that's not always the easiest thing, but um, I do recognize that I, I think there is an importance to integrating those concepts and not necessarily treating them as, um, as if they're in isolation. Dr. Carl Hart is a, he's a neuroscientist, neurologist, neuropsychologist, neuro something uh, at Columbia in uh, University in New York. And he does research around um, people making choices around substance use. And he wrote a book called High Price, which I recommend reading if you're wanting to explore this a little further. Um, and I'll stop there. So there should be some things that you all should know about me beyond what was said. I grew up in the hood in Miami, in a poor neighborhood. I came from a community in which drug use was prevalent. I kept a gun in my car. I engaged in petty crime. I used and sold drugs. But as has been said, I stand before you today also, emphasis on also, a professor at Columbia University who studies drug addiction. And I know I know what some of you all are wondering, especially the ones who haven't Googled me yet. How in the world did you get from there to here? Fortunately, there were a few key decisions in my life that changed my course. After high school, I joined the Air Force. And joining the Air Force started me on the path of higher education. And I ultimately earned a PhD in neuroscience. You see, I studied neuroscience specifically so I could sol solve the drug addiction problem. See, I fully believe that the crime and poverty in my community was a direct result of crack cocaine. And so I reasoned that if I could solve or cure drug addiction, I could fix crime and poverty in my community. So I was told and I fully believed that drugs like crack cocaine were so addictive that the user only needed one hit to become addicted. So in 1986, when Congress passed laws punishing crack cocaine trafficking violations a hundred times more harshly than those for powder cocaine, I thought that was quite appropriate. I mean, after all, 16 of the Congressional Black Caucus members voted for this legislation. 
I thought it sent the clear message to crack users and dealers in places like my old community that we wouldn't tolerate them destroying the neighborhood or the community. But I was unprepared for what I would learn as I went about making my contribution to the study of the neurobiology of drug addiction. And ultimately, this new information that I learned changed how I viewed the role of drugs in the whole poverty crime cycle. I first began questioning my thinking when I discovered that drugs like crack cocaine were not as addictive as we had been told. There is no drug in which the user uses one time and become addicted. In fact, 80 to 90 percent of the people who use illegal drugs are not addicts. They don't have drug pro a drug problem. I, I think I need to say that again. 80 to 90 percent of the people who use illegal drugs don't have a drug problem. Most are responsible members of our society. They are employed. They pay their taxes. They take care of their families. And in some cases, they even become president of the United States. <laughs> All three of these men reported illegal drug use when they were younger. Now, the point here, my point is not to besmirch or tarnish the reputation of these men. They all serve their country. My point is this. Their drug use did not result in an inevitable downward spiral leading to debauchery and addiction. And the experience of these men is the rule, not the exception. The overwhelming majority of drug users don't have a drug problem. Now, the notion or the idea or the basis for this one hit and you're hooked idea comes from experiments conducted in the 1960s and 1970s. Laboratory animals were given unlimited access to drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine will repeatedly self-administer or repeatedly press a lever to receive intravenous injections of these drugs until it kills them. These early experiments provided evidence for the drug-seeking into death notion. But that's not the whole story. In the cages in these experiments that I'm explaining or describing contain nothing else but a lever leading to intravenous drug injections. The most interesting part of the story for me, however, is what happened when the animals were presented with an alternative as well as the drug lever. The alternative being something like a sexually receptive mate or a sweet treat. <laughs> when given an option, animals do not self-administer drugs until death. In fact, the animals will often take the non-drug alternative over the drug. We followed up these experiments in my laboratory using human research participants. We recruited crack cocaine addicts from New York City. By the way, my, my use of the term addict conforms to the DSM definition of substance use disorder. And equally important, we met all human subjects and regulatory requirements before initiating these experiments. So we brought the cocaine users into the lab. We gave them a choice between $5 and a hit of cocaine, crack cocaine, worth more than $5. 
we repeated this with each person many times over several days. What we found was that the crack cocaine users chose to take drug on about half of the occasions and money on the other half of the occasions. Even a nominal amount of money was enough to deter crack cocaine addicts from taking drug on at least half of the occasions. Not exactly the insane, anything for a hit behavior that I was taught that crack cocaine users would display. We next recruited methamphetamine addicts and repeated that same experiment. Just like the crack cocaine users, the methamphetamine users chose to take methamphetamine on about half of the occasions and money on the other half of the occasions. We next raised the cash reward to $20. And when $20 was the alternative, the methamphetamine users almost never took the drug. They predominantly took the money. Just like the laboratory animals, when presented with an attractive alternative, even people diagnosed with drug addiction do not choose to take the drug. Stated another way, attractive alternatives dramatically decrease drug use. These were definitely not the results that I was expecting when I set out to solve the drug addiction problem. So, since my time in the hood, I had always viewed the plight of my family and community through the lens of those bad drugs. I even perpetuated the narrative that drugs were the problem. So you can imagine my shock and confusion as I started to uncover evidence that crime and poverty were mostly independent of drug use. I mean, crime was in poor communities long before crack cocaine ever hit the street. And annual FBI statistics clearly show that the overwhelming majority of prisoners were not addicted or intoxicated during the time of their crime. And as I think back over my family situation growing up, we certainly were poor well before drugs ever entered the picture. And I certainly engaged in petty crime, but it had nothing to do with drug addiction. It was about money and status. In other words, if you take drugs out of the equation, poverty and crime still exist. It's not drug addiction causing people to commit crime. It's other factors. So to make matters worse, drug laws are not uniformly enforced across all segments of our society. And this perpetuates the cycle of poverty and crime. The popular notion is that poor black people use crack cocaine, while wealthier white people tend to use powder cocaine. And in 1988, Congress extended the crack cocaine law such that we now punished possessions of crack cocaine a hundred times more harshly than those for powder cocaine. Scientifically, it makes no sense. Crack and powder cocaine are the same drug. They both have pharmacological predictable effects. As the dose of either are increased, so too are the effects on 
blood pressure, heart rate, euphoria, addictive potential, you name it. It's true that smoking crack cocaine produces a more intense effect than swallowing or snorting powder cocaine. But that increased intensity is, is due to routed administration, not the drug itself. Because injecting powder cocaine dissolved in water produces the identical intense effects as smoking crack cocaine. And those same laws require that anyone caught with even small amounts of crack cocaine were required to serve a minimum of five years in prison. But that's not, that's not even the real injustice. Here's the real injustice. The real injustice is this. More than 80% of the people convicted under these laws were black, despite the fact that most users of all forms of cocaine are white. I think it's okay to stop there. <laughs> I um, was getting caught up. I'm like, oh, I want to keep listening, even though I've heard this before. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, I'm sorry, I need to stop with the spoilers. Um, right, so we, we covered some of that content earlier, a little bit of it. But so Carl Hart takes an interesting perspective and he makes some really good points, right? Like there's we need to think about what what's most reinforcing in people's lives. He talks about the rational choice of crack addicts. That's sort of his, his language for this. Um, and it's it's certainly, um, you know, money, for example, in his research is, is one thing. Um, and the Rat Park research that he was uh, referencing, where if you create, a, let's see here, sorry. Rat parks. This is uh, Bruce Alexander's research from the 70s, where they have a, you know, rats have a fun place to run around. They're not going to use drugs as much if it's like safe, if it's enjoyable, stimulating. I think what this goes to point out is how in, how critical it is that people be housed, that they have social environments, that they have a productive or meaningful role in their lives. And so it's not about whether someone's going to become addicted or not necessarily. It's if, you, if there's any chance of someone working through addiction, if it is addiction that they have versus just substance use, because some substance use can exist outside of addiction, of course. Um, what is it going to take to deter that person away from deciding to use the drug? And it is all these other sort of holistic pieces in their life coming together to be more attractive, something they want to sustain more than the, the drive to use the drug. All right, so we'll skip over these slides, but you have them. Um, so a couple other kind of quick perspectives. Um, some other folks who kind of are relevant to harm reduction's perspective on addiction, um, Stanton Peel is one, um, and he, as well as uh, Peter Cohen, who's from the Netherlands, Stanton Peel is American and writes a lot about attachment, um, love is attachment, addiction, kind of makes some comparisons between love, attachment, and addiction as attachment. A lot of people don't necessarily like his writing. He also writes a lot about natural recovery. He's similar to the Sobels in that way. Um, we're not going to get into whether natural recovery is real or could occur, um, but if it is going to occur, it, it occurs when all of these supports are there, all of these things, the lack of poverty, um, perhaps not being a marginalized group, having housing, um, those are the things that are necessary. Uh, recovery capital is another concept that I, I mentioned briefly earlier. 
which talks about how losing everything at rock bottom is not necessarily going to leave people with enough to recover. Um, so getting to that, that point of there's nothing left, well, what is there going to be for that individual if they've lost their housing, their friends, their family, um, their health, uh, to recover, to engage in and enjoy uh, recovery capital or recovery supportive services? Um, the, the, in, the presence of those are conduits to someone actually being able to recover. So when we talk about recovery supportive services, that means maybe peer support um, or housing or wh what it, whatever needs to be there to support someone to have a reason to want to recover. Um, and then, uh, yes, as I just mentioned, Peter Cohen talks about bonding as kind of the function of addiction. Um, and this, again, we're just talking about reasons why, not just why people use, not the basis of why they use, but why addiction occurs. So maybe someone doesn't have other attachments in their life and substances are filling that void. Or for those who've experienced trauma or other circumstances that separate them from fulfillment, um, that drugs can fill in that blank. So just a couple of different ways of thinking about addiction from a harm reduction perspective. And I love this quote at the bottom, you need a little love in your life and some food in your stomach before you can hold still for some damn fool's lecture about how to behave. And it's tragic because we know, of course, Billy Holiday died from drug overdose, but it's still true. And it, it's true that her death does not negate um, the message here. Uh, and we are the damn fool, if, if, if you're wondering. We're the damn fool, of course, the providers who really desperately want to tell our clients what to do to be healthier and safer. Um, but we have to keep in mind, uh, it's food in the stomach, it's love in your life, and perhaps it's other things too. Um, so a lot to think about there. Let's talk a little bit about substance use diagnostic and labeling language. So you will hear that I use substance use almost, I'm pretty sure exclusively at this point. I, it's taken me a while to eradicate abuse from my um, vocabulary and that's my personal choice. Uh, some people are okay with substance misuse, some are okay with saying abuse. Um, we know that the language changed in the DSM from abuse and dependence to substance use disorder. And there's no like secret harm reduction agenda for the DSM, actually. I did a little bit of digging to remind myself if there was anything there, and there's nothing. If they, they made those decisions for other reasons, like diagnostic orphans getting produced that didn't fit with abuse or dependence. But now we have substance use disorder. Um, what I was talking about earlier, and I'm gonna try and throw this link in the chat and it's gonna be an ugly link and I'm sorry for that, but I, I actually just stumbled across this uh, recently. So it's nowhere in our slides, but here is this memo that was sent out just as the Obama administration was wrapping up and to hand things over to Trump. And I'm putting it in there because we have a different administration coming in. And no matter your politics, if you are a harm reductionist, if you're interested in recovery-oriented and person-centered services and language being used and supported by the executive branch, I am encouraged by the fact that our former vice president, who was part of this executive branch um, at the time, will be coming back um, and perhaps support the further integration of harm reduction and recovery-oriented uh, language and services into uh, what they expect the country to do. They don't have all the power, but we'll see. Um, so I encourage you to read through that. I'll read a little quote uh, 
from actually someone else, William White, who writes a book called Slaying the Dragon, which is a good book on the history of addiction and addiction treatment services. It's, it's a big, big book, um, um, but very, very interesting if you enjoy the history on this. Uh, so a quote by him, and he's been cited throughout this uh, presentation as well. Terms such as alcohol abuse, drug abuse, substance abuse, all spring from religious and moral conceptions at the of the roots of severe alcohol and other drug problems. They define the locus of the problem in the willful choices of the individual, denying how that power can be compromised, denying the power of the drug, and denying the culpability of those whose financial interests are served by promoting and increasing the frequency and quantity of drug consumption. So he has a bit of a perspective on like, let's not call it abuse for a completely different reason than what I would consider. I don't like using the word abuse because not all use is abuse. And abuse also has a bit of a, a bit of a, a meaning of something negative. Um, in this memo, uh, I'm gonna read a little bit more from it. Uh, they're citing some research that shows that people with substance use disorders are viewed more negatively than people with physical or psychiatric disabilities. Um, and that even highly trained substance use disorder and mental health clinicians were significantly more likely to assign blame and believe that an individual should be subjected to more punitive, um, punitive measures rather than therapeutic measures when the subject of a case vignette was referred to as a substance abuser rather than a person with a substance use disorder. So we don't like the word abuse. It has like, right, just as humans, it makes me think of domestic violence actually is immediately what it makes me think of. Um, and other people have their own sort of, you know, associations with the word, but I would encourage try out use. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty objective. Um, if you have someone who's, who, who likes the word abuse, like a client identifies as someone who abuses substance, then you'd follow their lead on their language, of course. But Use is another option that uh, takes some of the power um, that may not intentionally be meant to be there um, from language. Um, also of note, the editors of the journal Substance Abuse have released a, I believe this is in, I want to say 2017, 2018, um, a letter, a publication within their publication talking about how their title is a diagnostic anachronism and a pejorative term. So they're, it was a, a long, long article talking about how they might not change it still because that's what their journal's called, but all the same, talking about how person-first language is critical, avoiding slang and idioms is definitely critical, and maybe that even using the term substance use disorder in the future may be viewed with the same sort of critical lens that the term substance abuse is currently by some. So more food for thought. And linking this back to your jobs really quickly in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> so all of this talk, and I, I feel it when I watch uh, Carl Hart speak, it's clear he hasn't necessarily had your job. It's clear he hasn't uh, worked with uh, the FSP population um, who, because of, of serious mental illness also being part of the picture, might have a different choice structure. They, that rational choice may not exist in the same way that it would someone without SMI. Um, so we, 
integrated care is challenging. Working with co-occurring disorders is challenging. And this is not, unfortunately, a training on co-occurring disorder treatment, which is extremely nuanced. This is just purely a harm reduction training. So we're hoping you can take from this and glean things to still apply within your work. But I know how it is. Uh, you know, if you've we're talking, I'm talking about people needing housing to be able to recover and you're dealing with folks who just leave their housing every single time they are put in it at times or um, those that will, there is no limit to the amount of methamphetamine that they will use. Um, there is no other reinforcing factor that would influence them away from that. And in some, some instances, uh, some cases, some individuals, it's really hard and the best thing you can do is just try and stay engaged and try and keep them safe as possible. And we'll talk about that on Thursday. Um, but just to link things together a little bit. So what does all this harm reduction stuff have to do with FSP clients? Um, pointers to remember that experiencing mental illness does not reduce the right to autonomy. So still people have the right to make the choice to use drugs if they want to and education around substance use and mental health symptoms and medications is that much more critical then. It's for, critical for you and then the education that you can impart to them to use their medications, um, manage their lives themselves, um, or especially as it relates to substances is really important, um, especially if you've got people on a, a number of medications or with other chronic health conditions. Um, again, substance use and mental health must be seen as integrated and differential diagnosis concerns should be examined carefully. It's maybe not always as necessary as you think to really clarify what's due to what. Sometimes it is just that bound together. Um, and of course, we wanna keep a trauma-informed and trauma etiology lens uh, for understanding why people use or why addiction is present. And this is just sort of a, a set of options here. And you can, you can say one, two, or three in the chat which best fits most FSP clients' history? Is it substance use came first and then they experienced trauma and the mental illness came after, or is it trauma, then substance use, then mental illness, or is it mental illness, then substance use, then trauma, or none of the above? Number two, trauma, substance use, mental illness. Number two, wow, none of the, none of the above. Okay, I'd love to hear what, what's the, I said none of the above, and I'm like, what is, what is none of the above? I don't know. Tell me if you've got a, another option here, another, all of them. Yeah, so there's no right answer here. This is just meant to show there's, there's so many different ways these things can relate. And a lot of you are saying number two, and I find that interesting because that means you are, you're seeing trauma as um, the reason why, uh, substance use might occur, and then substance use might create a vulnerability uh, for mental illness or something along those lines. Not everything is caused by trauma. Okay. Yeah. This is just for uh, just a thought experiment. And then, you know, thinking about, as Carl Hart was saying, what about crime? What about poverty? What about race? Like, what? how does all of this look different? How does trauma look different for communities of color? Um, what if homelessness is present? How does trauma, substance use, and mental illness, how does all that fit together differently um, or perhaps not so differently? Um, thinking of all these factors, and when, I don't think any of us are ever trying to figure out the cause of one thing, we're more so looking towards um, solutions. But when you are trying to piece together someone's history, understanding um, how these all these three interrelate, uh, 
is important. And I, I can't speak for all of your clientele, but I'm gonna guess that trauma is probably, has been present in their lives at some point. So no, trauma doesn't cause everything, but it can be a big factor. Um, so wrapping up here, how does harm reduction explain addiction? Doesn't, it doesn't really, it doesn't try to. Um, it's, there's no one explanation or treatment. It sees a spectrum and it respects all of it. Um, disease models are fine. Abstinence is gold, also fine, um, if that's what works for the individual. So it's really about fit. It's about fit of intervention and fit of treatment, fit of how someone describes their life and the meaning substances or addiction is held for them. Um, and same goes for those who use substances to self-medicate or recreate and may be able to maintain moderation eventually. And again, harm reduction is all about reducing harms. Most simply, it is about reducing harms. So tomorrow we'll talk about some of the sort of autonomy supportive, not tomorrow, Thursday, I'm sorry, autonomy supportive clinical approaches, some, some concepts and how to formulate a bit of a treatment plan that is based in a harm reduction approach. Um, and then on the Wednesday of next week, our day three, we will really get into safer use strategies and how to look at uh, some vignettes, some cases and figure out what, how, to, how to target some intervention points using harm reduction exclusively. All right, so we are, Harm reduction is about reducing harms, not ignoring them, but supporting the autonomy and expertise that individuals have in their own lives, helping them make safer decisions and keeping them alive and keeping them engaged, keeping them engaged to make those aforementioned safer decisions. Um, I think I talked about this earlier. There's a continuum within harm reduction. Uh, we don't really need to touch on it too much, but just to say that there are some folks that think, Scott Kellogg is one of them, he's with NYU, he thinks that uh, harm reduction needs to move a little bit more towards abstinence as goal, actually. Um, if you want to read up on his stuff, I, I welcome you to. Just another example of how there are some sort of hybrid models out there. It's not all uh, hyper-radical, people should use drug stuff. It, there's plenty of... Um, people who were trying to bridge the abstinence world and the harm reduction world. All right, we're not gonna discuss anything. Sorry, folks. And these are principles revisited. We're not gonna look at my substance use road intersection stoplight that I worked so hard on formatting. But we are gonna look at this because it's really pretty. So I this just came out in October from the Harm Reduction Coalition, and this will be our last slide. The Harm Reduction Coalition is a national group. They have offices in Oakland and in New York, and then a lot of people scattered remotely throughout the country. I don't know what is going on with their funding, but they are developing materials at light speed right now in a way I haven't seen in about I don't know, eight to 10 years. Um, so the coalition does a lot of training and, and uh, resource creation. And of course they, they bring in funds and allocate funds to create better harm reduction programming. But this is a, a material that they came out with recently. And it's a, it's a wonderful comparison of the tree of liberation and the tree of stigma. And you can check it out on their website. I think it's, uh, the link is respect to connect. I think that I can, if I can find it, I'll throw it in the chat. Um, but taking it back to 
what this is about. Harm reduction is about respecting autonomy, recognizing that risk is real, that harms are real, but working alongside um, individuals to really follow their path and to see them, to see them as humans with the right and uh, with the right to make decisions and that they, there's so much good in them to not, to not dehumanize or minimize them to someone who is a substance user, an addict, um, whatever. So on the left, we've got, starting from the bottom, roots and perceptions, seeing substance users or people who use drugs as capable, trustworthy, and caring versus not trustworthy, lazy, and sick. The beliefs, they can do anything. They're telling me the truth. They care about the community versus beliefs of they're probably lying, they don't have the willpower, they can't help themselves. Um, and then what are the actions on this left side? Creating plans together based off their goals, asking clarifying questions to understand the whole story, benefits and consequences and needs, sharing resources and education for their friends to have versus the actions of stigma, which is ignoring the story and projecting your own agenda. We are actually engaging in uh, and um, proliferating, that's not the right word. Uh, we are furthering stigma when we don't listen to someone's story, when we, when we gloss over the details and when we just assign our own agenda and assume that power, um, when we're requiring mandatory X, Y, Z because they won't do it otherwise, or when uh, we only talk about the disease and not about what they actually have control over. So when we don't positively frame things, when we don't look at the whole picture and treat someone as a very whole human who can go on a myriad of paths. All right, so we are done. Uh, sorry for the bit of a rushed ending. We'll start at 1 p.m. and go till 4.30 on Thursday. Thank you so much. I, um, as pe If people are staying on, I, I know a while ago, I believe it was Dr. Ahmed had a question about risk reduction versus harm reduction and uh, I was thinking I'm able to answer that from a little bit of an older perspective and from my work with HIV and AIDS, we really viewed it as a sort of a continuum for uh, safer sex practices. So there was kind of like the uh, prevention component, but then, uh, you know, it, it, again, the program I worked in was, was geared towards men who have sex with men. So the risk reduction piece was encouraging condom use and, um, and being able to provide those tools uh, for individuals. And then the harm reduction approach was when people were not willing to use, uh, uh, to use mm. some of those tools for safer sex. And so again, it, it's a, it, not appropriate to go into some of the harm reduction techniques for this uh, audience, but then we, we would um, talk more specifically of like, okay, you're not, you know, you're choosing to not use these things. So now we wanna protect the harm that might come from the behaviors as much as possible. And uh, so we really viewed that as a, it, it was definitely a, a continuum. Um, I don't know how well that translates. I was trying to think about it like with, with substances and I, it, it's hard for me to kind of wrap my head around uh, seeing if there's an overlap there. Interestingly, um, I mean, the coalition just tried to sort of address this. Um, they're defining risk reduction as tools and services to reduce potential harm and then uh, harm reduction as the approach and fundamentals to reduce potential harm. I don't really see a difference there. I think it's just, right, I think it might be a little bit of semantics. 
personally. Um, the risk reduction world, I, like I came from that initially, and that was what we were talking about doing sort of like educational interventions with uh, binge drinking college students. Um, could that have been called harm reduction? Yes. But we were coming from, we were researchers, um, not, uh, not service providers. Um, so maybe tools and services versus approach and fundamentals. Maybe risk reduction exists outside of like the, the clinical, maybe something like that. I'm not sure. <laughs> One thought. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. So I, I appreciate that, that coming up and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit intrigued now <laughs> to see if that, if that's really an application for, for substance use or not. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. And then the coalition is calling harm reduction with a capitalized H and capitalized R as a reference to the philosophical and political movement. So they're actually, that's helpful because I never know whether to capitalize it or not. And now it's harm reduction capitalized proper noun if it's about the movement and if it's about approach and fundamentals uh, for reducing harm, it's little h and little r. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for all the, the participation. I love seeing the commentary in this. I can't read it while I'm talking because I can't do both at the same time. Um, <laughs> And thank you for your open minds. <laughs>